Mayne Forty here. Just thinking about very different incentives that are operating on the, the different players in this Middle Eastern conflict. It's definitely in Joe Biden's interest and in America's interest for this dispute, for this war, for this battle, to get some kind of resolution, because the longer that America is you know, stuck supporting Israel, while much of the world seems to be siding with the people in Gaza, then supporting dramatically increasing the odds of some kind of 9-11 event hitting the United States. And when you get into a fight, you just never know how it's going to escalate. And so this is happening on Joe Biden's watch right now. It looks very much like uh, Donald Trump will be the next president of the United States. So the more disorder, the more war, the more conflict, more uncertainty, right? The more threats to the free flow of, of trade, right? The less likely it is that uh, Joe Biden will be reelected. So America is scared of the conflagration that could result from and uh, Hamas. Now, China also has to be concerned because China imports almost all its energy. So anything that could dramatically send up oil prices will be really bad for China. The, the one party that uh, seems to be sitting pretty right now is Russia and Vladimir Putin. Right, because this is distracting the United States from supporting Ukraine. The United States is getting distracted all over the globe. You've got uh, Azerbaijan taking over Nagorno-Karabakh and uh, ethnically expelling 120,000 Armenians. You have uh, unrest in the Balkans. You have uh, the ever-present threat of uh, China attacking and taking over Taiwan. So it's definitely not in America's interest to have this fight. Iran doesn't seem to have much of an appetite for this fight. There doesn't seem to be any evidence that Iran directed this Hamas attack on Israel October 7th. This seems to be 100% something that came from Hamas. Big story dropped on the New York Times behind Hamas's bloody gambit to create a permanent state of war. Hamas leaders say they waged their October 7 attack on Israel because they believed the Palestinian cause was slipping away and that only violence could revive it. So Israel was increasingly making peace with various Arab nations because Israel had positioned itself as being so strong that uh, the Ar various Arab nations thought it's just not worth it to be in conflict with, with Israel. We just normalize relations. We increase opportunities for trade and getting into the goodwill of the United States. And the Palestinian cause was not as much in the news. It was not as much of a concern to people anymore. And so that's why Hamas did what it did. It wanted to revive Palestine as an issue. It wanted to revive Palestinian people. And it, it you know, is what drove this massacre. They wanted to change the entire equation, not just have a clash. We want to put the Palestinian issue back on the table. Now, no one in the region is experiencing calm. So you'll, you'll encounter the same thing at work. Right? If someone is experiencing Sturmendrang, if someone is experiencing you know, a great deal of anxiety or, or pressure, right, many times they won't be able to just keep it to themselves. They will want to spread the contagion. They will want to spread the anxiety. And so Hamas wants a permanent state of war with Israel on all the borders of Israel. 
and they hope that the Arab world will stand with Hamas. But uh, Hamas is not popular with the Arab world. Hamas is not even popular with most Gazans, uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, Egypt, Jordan would be very glad to see the United States absolutely crush Hamas. So Hamas is gambling that uh, Israel will become besieged on all fronts that the entire Arab world will stand with us. That's not going to happen. So the incentives for Hamas are not the same as the incentives for the leadership in Egypt or Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, or Saudi Arabia. Now, Hezbollah is in a very precarious situation in Lebanon. And so it does not want a war with Israel either. Right? The, the Lebanese are quite sick of Hezbollah, and Hezbollah would be placed in a very delicate situation, a struggle for its own survival if they emerged into a full-blown conflict with Israel. So right now, it looks like the incentives operating on Hezbollah to only make a symbolic show of uh, force to protest what Israel is doing in Gaza. Iran is also being very quiet. Now, some of its proxies are making token resistance against Israel, but uh, Iran feels its own vulnerabilities, so its own incentives are not Hamas war to escalate. Uh, Egypt definitely doesn't want the Israel-Hamas war to escalate. They don't want to be responsible for Gazans. They fear the destabilizing effect of millions of Gazans pouring into Egypt. Israel would love to be able to use the tension and conflict to expel effectively more Palestinians out of greater Israel. I mean, it's not in Israel's best interest to have you know the, the Gaza Strip. Right? It's just a kind of a weird intrusion into what many Israelis would regard as greater Israel. Many Israeli settlers on the West Bank are driving out Palestinians, making life increasingly difficult for them. And so there's a good deal of the Israeli population and Israeli political spectrum that is going to try to use this war to ethnically cleanse Palestinians to create space for, for a greater Israel and for, for more settlers to move into Gaza and the, the West Bank and to take it over and return it or take it over, send it into Jewish sovereignty. Now, Bibi Netanyahu, right? When this war is over, like his political career is over. So Bibi Netanyahu does not personally have incentives to wind up this war quickly because he's highly unpopular at home. The war finishes, there will be a major investigation, and his political career will be over. And so he wants to just try to you know, stay on, grasp on to, to power through, through any means necessary. The longer, the more brutal this war is, the, probably the better it is for Bibi Netanyahu's uh, political career. Also, Israel faces incentives to be brutal in response to Hamas so that Arab nations recognize that Israel is here to stay and that any Arab or Muslim group that attacks it will have to pay a very stiff penalty. So Israel is strongly incentivized to be quite brutal in putting down Hamas to signal to other nations, hey, this is the price you're going to have to pay if you attack us. And Hamas, right, they, they felt they were strongly incentivized to be as brutal as possible to Israelis to signal that we're here to stay. So both Israel and Hamas are both fighting 
the claim that we are here to stay. We cannot be moved. We are a you know, vital force that must be respected and we deserve your attention. And uh, right now it looks like Hamas is just getting absolutely mauled. Not quite sure what's going to follow behind it. Uh, some of the more absurd commentary I've heard on this Arab-Israeli conflict is all these celebrities and other people saying, have you checked in with your Jewish friends to see if they're okay? I, I, I mean, it, it doesn't matter to me if you check in with, with me or not to see if I'm okay. Uh, that just seems strange. You should get your primary sustenance in life from your family. And then if not your family, your extended family and your friends and your community uh, acquaintances checking in to see if you're okay. I, I don't see the payoff to that. I, it wouldn't wouldn't really mean anything to me. Like support is something that you should look for on your deathbed. But aside from my deathbed, I, I can't imagine looking for su support. And so apparently many Jews on the left, perhaps they're of the more touchy-feely variety, uh, are feeling quite hurt that uh, people haven't reached out to them to see if they're doing okay. I don't don't share this. So. I'm hearing over and over again. All right, this is Ron Campius. He writes for the Jewish Telegraphic Agency, JTA, and he's in conversation here with Robert Wright. Uh, yeah, two friends contacted me. I have a lot of friends. This is a, a young woman I interviewed in Las Vegas for a story I want to write about what's going on in the community there, but just two friends called in. And I and she's, you know, this is a woman who's, uh, the woman I interviewed, who's very much on the progressive list. She's an activist, and she, there, there's, this, there's this feeling of abandonment. I think there's this feeling of aloneness that is mitigated to a degree, I think, by... Um, uh, so I, I'm a little I'm not sure I'm clear on what the disappointment is. They had expected. So these are people left, but not far left progressive, I, maybe J Street types yeah. who who were still hold out hope for two state solution yeah. and and uh, advocate for it. And who are what, critical what, of the Netanyahu government, very sure. much critical, and particularly in how it's not just in, you know, it's judiciary thing, but also in how right. it treats the Palestinians. And what had they hoped would happen? Who would they hope would call and what, what did they want them to say? I think they, they didn't hope. They were just considering afterwards, wait a second, I've undergotten trauma. This person knows that I have family in Israel. This person knows that I've lived in Israel, okay. and I'm not hearing from them. And instead, and what's happening is also they're looking, this is like the curse of social media. They're right. looking at these people's Facebook pages, and they're seeing expressions of support for Palestinians, and they're saying, well, I never right. saw you say anything on October the 7th. I, never, I didn't even get a private message from you on October the 7th about how devastating this can be. I mean, right. this is, even for people who don't have uh, you know, relatives in Israel, or who don't have immediate relatives in Israel, who are the, the, the trauma of those visions of, um, you know, just other stories, the trauma of those visuals and of the stories that came with them are just so reminiscent of, mm -hmm. of so much Jewish trauma. And, you know, it's like the sort of thing that you grew up with and you heard from your relatives and you got in Hebrew school and you said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And suddenly it's like, oh my God, this really is happening in my time. These things that happened in the 1940s that I thought mm -hmm. would never happen again. Uh, not the not the whole obviously holistic thing of the Holocaust, but the particulars of of the utter dehumanization of people mm -hmm. of, of children and of women. It, it's happening uh, again, and uh, there's just like a there's a, there's a residual trauma. Easy to feel victimized. It's, it's really easy to you know experience all sorts of levels of trauma. Trauma has become the all inclusive you know explanation for everything. It, it's just strikes me as incredibly naive to expect, you know, acquaintances to reach out to you to see if you're you're doing okay due to events in the Middle East. Right. Uh, Robert Wright increasingly believes that Donald Trump is going to be the next president. Went in Las Vegas a couple of weeks ago, and um, he is the um, uh, he just seems inevitable. I mean, just going from the the donor class and the and the grassroots people who turn out of that yeah. kind of 
thing right now, he seems inevitable. And that's, you know, that's a plus for Biden, I guess. I think in terms of, although he is leading, like you said, he's you know in the, those swing states, mm-hmm. uh, Trump is leading. That's, I think, is it's too early to like to to show the to say those polls are going to be definitive. I think. Yeah, but if I had to bet, I mean, I hate to say this, but I would bet that Trump is going to be the next president. It's, it's, uh, I'm not happy. He's not happy about saying that. But yeah, right now it does look like uh, Trump's going to be the next president. Uh, another dimension to this conflict that, that I find interesting is that uh, a lot of non-Jewish employees are not uh, particularly supportive of the cares and concerns of their Jewish bosses because they probably feel like, hey, you know, my own people back in Guatemala or in Africa or in other parts of the Middle East have suffered and you don't seem to give a damn. And now when something happens in Israel, uh, you know, that's supposed to be, you know, the moral issue of our time. So I noticed quite a few non-Jewish employees of Jewish bosses are quite eager to whisper to each other free Palestine, not because they necessarily have any strong affinity for the Palestinian people, they just, you know, are tired of their bosses. And it's usually socially unacceptable to say things that are, you know, directly anti-Jewish. So just uh, whispering, you know, free Palestine or, or quitting over your boss's support of Israel uh, and noticing this happening, all right, including at a cafe, coffee shop in New York City, Fox Thank News. You. So I'm a psychologist in Queens. Um, and I, you know, I saw the post about all the workers walking out of here. Um, I used to own coffee shops, so I know how to make coffee. And so I cleared my day and I just came in. I waited about an hour online and, uh, you know, it was worth it because we're supporting Israel. We're supporting our community. It was amazing to see how the community galvanized in an instant. And then I decided it's not enough just to come by. I'm helping behind. I'm sweeping the floor. It's an amazing thing to have a strong in-group identity where you all pitch in to help each other out, look out for each other's businesses. If you don't live life with a strong in-group identity, I think you're really missing out. Well, there's an incredible story, a Jewish-owned cafe right here in New York City getting a major outpouring of support from the community. The owner of Cafe Aron says his employees have taken issue with his pro-Israel stance, with five of his workers quitting in protest since October 7th. The cafe was on the verge of shutting its doors just yesterday until members of the community came out in droves to work behind the counter while others lined the block to buy coffee and pastries. Uh, Aaron Dehan is the owner of Cafe Aron joins us now live. Aaron, thank you so much for joining us. What an incredible story. I'll put the cover of the New York Post back up for people to see. Um, first, what was your reaction to, to those long lines in your story hitting the cover today? I mean, it was, it was, it was something spectacular. Our community really came together for us. Uh, people told me the line to come yesterday was longer than lines to vote. Um, we're on Lexington Avenue, went around the block all the way to park, and people came together, our community, Fortunately, here in New York, we know terror all too well. Um, and when it was happening in Israel, and we thought we were going to close because our staff. Hey, uh, confrontation here in Los Angeles led to a death. Yeah, ever since this happened Sunday here at the corner of Westlake and Thousand Oaks Boulevard, this makeshift memorial has been growing. An increasing number of flowers and candles brought here to remember Paul Kessler. And today, a man who was with Kessler Sunday spoke out about what he saw. I see a punch. I 
The reason I know that I could see the punch was because it was the white megaphone flying through the air. It was Sunday afternoon when, according to Jonathan Oswax, he and Paul Kessler went to represent a Jewish perspective at a pro-Palestinian protest. The 69-year-old Kessler was... That's a really bad idea to, to represent a Jewish perspective and a pro-Palestinian perspective. Like, don't go representing the the opposite perspective at any passionate protest unless you want to take your life in your hands. I've always deliberately avoided physical fights to the extent possible because once you get into a physical confrontation, you never know what happens. You can just get shoved and fall back, hit your head, and die, which is what apparently what happened to Paul Kessler. Seen holding the Jewish flag. You wanted to take the flag from him. He wouldn't let you. That's correct. Oswag says Kessler fell to the ground. According to Ventura County Sheriff Jim Fryhoff, he fell backward and struck his head on the ground. What exactly transpired prior to Mr. Kessler falling backward isn't crystal clear right now. Fryhoff said the case is under investigation, but did say a suspect was interviewed. The suspect was cooperative and indicated he was involved in an altercation with Mr. Kessler. And there was a search warrant of his home. I cannot comment on the results of, the, of that search warrant as the investigation is ongoing. At the corner where it happened, there was anger and frustration. After seeing this, this is uh, devastating. And here we are in 2023, and there is terror everywhere. As for Jewish community leaders here, so much anger. Let me be clear. A man was killed in this spot for having an Israeli flag. Elon Carr. No, he, he wasn't killed in that spot for having an Israeli flag. He was killed in that spot because he got into a confrontation with somebody that led to shoving, and then he fell back and hit his head, and that killed him. But there is a, there's a wonderful life to be made stoking your in-group's resentments. And uh, so you have you know, various Jewish leaders you know, rushing to the scene before we know the full facts on the ground, you know, stoking in-group resentment here. Is the CEO of the Israeli-American Council. Enough is enough. We're done with attacks against Jews. We're done with attacks against Jews in the Jewish homeland, and we're done. Look, you go to a pro-Palestinian rally waving an Israeli flag. That is experienced by those Palestinians as an attack, right? If you have a strong in-group, if you have a strong hero system, all right, let's say you have a strong heterosexual hero system, and you are at a rally for keeping the definition of marriage is between one man and one woman. And, you know, people come up to you waving flags supporting same-sex marriage. You're going to experience that as an attack is going to be experienced by you just as much as a visceral attack on you as if they, you know, pushed you or shoved you. Done with attacks against Jews in New York and in Los Angeles. Finally, a prayer from the cantor at Kessler Synagogue. Okay. Uh, everyone's got a hero system, but uh, they frequently differ, and it just does not behoove one to unnecessarily provoke somebody about you know their their differing hero system compared to yours. Just uh, not too smart. All right, let me get my act together. Here is. 
the podcast If Books Could Kill, uh, reviewing the 48 Laws of Power. The spectrum. There's people who have what's called social dominance orientation. Yeah, that's me. That physically, like, cannot see situations as win-win. Yeah. You can explain to them, like, in very clear terms, like, both people benefited from this interaction, and they'll be like, no, he won. <laughs> so it's like this idea that, like, you can't look for win-win scenarios because you don't think that they exist. Well, you know, a little peek behind the curtain for listeners, but you were recently at my wedding, mm. and I just want to ask you, who do you think won? <laughs> the world, because there's one fewer single straight man in the world walking around. <laughs> Everybody won. No, I, look, I, I told my wife right afterwards, I was like, I think I won this one. You know? <laughs> This entire episode is a subtweet of you, Peter. This is an intervention. This is why I do any of the books. I think that everyone knows people like this to some degree or like they yeah. have some version of this, right? Yeah. I don't mind competitive stuff with my friends, but there are people who in the workplace, in personal relationships, et cetera, just cannot tolerate the idea of someone else doing well. Mm -hmm. And just to, get, just to give an example of where this stuff might lead, I think that a lot of these mindsets sort of feed into things like incel culture yeah, okay. where these guys create an adversarial relationship with women in their minds, right? Mm. They can't help but view women as their enemies, even though they are fundamentally trying to connect with them. This is actually kind of where I was going with this because they, they've measured this in various countries and across time periods, et cetera. And typically what you find in society is that zero sum thinking is more common among majority groups. So like white people, men, depending on the country, Christians are more likely to engage in zero-sum thinking. Basically, this is one of the major things that prevents policies that would increase equality because people like physically cannot process the idea of more equality as not taking something away from them. Right. So there's actual studies on this where they give people like scenarios. They're like, okay, Latinos are less likely to get home loans than white people. So like the mayor is going to pass a policy that like promotes home loans for Latinos. This will not affect white people. <laughs> and then- Right, yeah, it will not affect white people. But then you change the standards for home loans, all right? And what happens? So you've got different groups now who have to meet different standards to get a mortgage. And you have preferential groups, right, who get to meet lower standards and banks are forced to extend mortgage loans to groups that are much less likely to pay them back. And as a result, you get the global financial crash of 2008. But the, these two lefties of this, you know, podcast talk as though, oh, you give certain favored groups, uh, you know, different standards, lower standards, you know less daunting standards to get mortgages or to get into medical school. You know, this isn't going to hurt white people. Well, it took down the entire world economy, this very sort of practice that he's talking about. Like the survey question is like, will this affect white people? And, and survey respondents are like, oh, yeah. Big time. <laughs> like even like in black and white, you're like, this will like, this is a fake scenario. I have defined right, that right. this will not <laughs> affect the in-group. You're like, oh, yeah, I'm going to get fucked by this. Right. So much kind of political debate takes place on the sort of implementation of policies or these specifics. But it's like when your understanding of society at this most basic level is just that no one can get. Look, if you if you do special things for one group, right, other people inevitably get hurt, all right? So Harvard and other elite universities say, oh, we never use race to impede somebody's admittance into university. We just, you know, use race to give advantages to, you know, oppressed or, or downtrodden groups. But those advantages to other groups they come at the expense to different groups, all right? Different groups have different interests, right? You expand civil rights, all right? So 
you had a massive expansion of civil rights in the 1960s, and that meant that traditional freedoms and traditional rights were consequently reduced. You can't increase rights for some groups and not take away rights for other groups. So rights to freedom of association were severely reduced by civil rights legislation. Civil rights legislation you know, has the government interfering with who you can rent to, who you can employ. Extending you know, rights for women uh, limits the rights of free association for men. What if men want to create a, you know, male-only cultures or male-only workplaces? That, that's now illegal. So you create uh, same-sex marriage, and that comes at the hero systems of those who believe in traditional definition of marriage. And many men who are already on the fence about getting married, they, they become so turned off by the spectacle of, of same-sex marriage that they're probably less likely to commit to the heterosexual version. Not most, but a number, right? It changes a culture, and any time you expand rights for, say, one group, that's always going to come at the expense of rights for other groups. You've talked about how most of it is sociopathic advice and these weird, irrelevant anecdotes. The other main pattern, like we're now down to like the the, the remaining like 25% of the, <laughs> of the book. Most of it is just sociopathy and weird anecdotes. Uh-huh. The rest uh-huh. of it is just like straight up bad advice. So I'm going to send you the opening anecdote of Law 6, Court Attention at All Cost. Oh my God. Thank you. It is the story of P.T. Barnum opening like his first museum where people could come and he was he was basically trying to get them to attend his new museum through like marketing efforts. Got it. So here's this. Barnum would put a band of musicians on a balcony overlooking the street beneath a huge banner proclaiming free music for the millions. What generosity, New Yorkers thought, and they flocked to hear the free concerts. But Barnum took pains to hire the worst musicians he could find. And soon after the band struck up, people would hurry to buy tickets to the museum where they would be out of earshot of the band's noise (laughs) and of the booing of the crowd. So, like, what? you should be obnoxious to people so they go to your museum, I guess? Why? Who would flee into a museum? <laughs> by the same guy who's providing the music? Right, by the guy who just proved to you that he cannot entertain you. That's why our main feed episodes are just two hours of the sound of a baby crying, so that people <laughs> seek refuge in our bonus episodes. What I often do is go to the hip parts of Brooklyn and just blast an air horn, thus driving people to podcasts, where they will eventually find if books could kill. <laughs> So then after this deranged, like kind of funny, but like not clearly relevant anecdote, Mm -hmm. he then says, this this is the advice that we're pulling from this. He says, at the beginning of your rise to the top, spend all your energy on attracting attention. Most importantly, the quality of the attention is irrelevant. What? No, I don't. I I think if you're like an intern at a company and you want to get a promotion, you you do need positive attention. Running (laughs) running into like the board of directors meeting and like doing a hear ye, hear ye. (laughs) I don't even understand what quality. Yeah, for for. Almost everyone, uh, th- there's never a time where the the atten- type of attention you get doesn't matter, right? There's all, all sorts of attention that's really, really bad for you. Uh, I mean, I, I know it's it's often said that, you know, all attention's good attention, but that's rarely correct. So I think they make some pretty good uh, critiques of the 48 Laws of Power. Right, this is, I thought, was an important piece on ABC News from 11 years ago, True Confessions, ex-HR executive uh, tells all. True Confessions continues. Now, Deborah Roberts with Confessions from the Corner Office. So why don't you uh, describe yourself, Mr. Dupree? 
I'm not a workhorse. If you're looking for a Clydesdale, I'm probably not your, your man. Um, incidentally, what's your policy on Columbus Day? Yeah, uh, we, we work. Really? Between you, me, and Dupree, most of us know the wrong things to say in a job interview. My resume. But in her book, Corporate Confidential, former company hatchet woman Cynthia Shapiro reveals that what you don't know could not only prevent you from getting hired, but could get you fired. You. This is a, a great book. I think it's the best book I've read on understanding how corporate culture works. You are essentially giving all those dirty little secrets that HR does not want us to know. They're definitely dirty. They're not always so little. <laughs> and they can be sneaky. If you see family photos on the interviewer's desk and start bonding over having kids, you may have fallen into a secret trap. There's a, an HR director that I know, and when you come in for the interview, she's got a picture of two adorable little kids that are facing you in the interview. She doesn't have kids. This is a trick. What she has is an edict from upper management to not hire moms. So if you start talking about your children... Right, so the more laws we get, the more civil rights laws, the more litigation we get, then the trickier companies and bosses and HR has to be with you so that they can pursue their own goals, but there's less and less room for, for honesty. And so what people say and what uh, corporations proclaim are their core values... Not necessarily true. Children, she yes. knows right away to strike you off the list. Exactly right. That's and you, terrible. And you'll never know. And there's even a secret backup yeah, plan that might keep moms from getting hired. The let me walk you back to your car trick. They're looking to see if you have a baby seat in the back. Aha, uh -huh. so they come Which over here and they... people do. And that could cost you the job. That will cost you the job. But even if you land the job, Shapiro says prepare for a game of survival where only your boss knows the rules violate them and you may end up on the dreaded top secret layoff list there really are layoff lists yes there's there are secret are yes <laughs> there are secret layoff vulnerable. lists she confesses that all kinds of things can get you on the layoff list including get this your vacation plans piker asked how much vacation time you get in the first year vacation time you want vacation in Australia, everybody gets a minimum of a, a month off. I think America's the only first world country where there's no minimum vacation time. Time, go teach third grade public school. But if you don't work in a boiler room like the guys in this film, and you actually get two weeks of vacation, Shapiro says no one tells you that you probably shouldn't take them all at once. Companies move too fast. They'll find a way around you in two or three weeks, and they'll realize they can do without you, and they will. And watch out for those Mai Tais and margaritas on your not-longer-than-one-week vacation. Oh, yeah, we got to trim some of the fat around here. Trim the... What do you mean by trim the fat? I want you to fire the fat people. Like in the movie, there are horrible bosses, Shapiro says, who'll put you on that layoff list simply for how you look especially if you're looking too old. Only executives get to have gray hair. It's not fair, but that's how it goes. You want to look good, but not too good. Deborah Lee Lorenzano claims she was fired by Citibank because they thought her sexy looks were too distracting, even though she wore business clothes. The worst feeling was knowing that HR was not there to help me, but to help Citibank. Citibank insists Lorenzana was let go for poor job performance. We know what's under that jacket. 
you're pregnant, have been for a while. So unfortunately you didn't tell us because uh, you would have found out that we thought it's great. <laughs> really? And believe it or not, Shapiro says being pregnant isn't oh always celebrated, as in this scene, even though there are laws to protect women from being fired. Okay, looking at the chat, it says, ask ChatGBT to write a positive poem about Donald Trump, and it won't do it, yet it will do it for Joe Biden. That's what people like me were paid, you know, big bucks to do, to find the gray areas around the laws that would allow the companies to do what they want to do. Which is what 25-year-old Tess Adams says happened to her. She And uh, Crash says, telecom companies, defamation lawsuits, most hated man in porn. Is any of that stuff true, Forty? Is it all true? Uh, there is uh, truth to... to Many of those things. Recently had a stellar performance evaluation when she was suddenly fired for cause. Her bosses said she was a poor employee. Why do you think you were fired? I think I was fired because I was pregnant. Do you think that maybe it was related to your work? There's no way. No way. I never had a complaint until I told him I was pregnant. In fact, Shapiro says the dirtiest secret of all is that companies rarely tell employees the real reason they wound up on the layoff list for fear of being sued for wrongful termination. We're going to need to go ahead and move you downstairs into storage B. No, I, we, uh, I would have could some new people coming in. They... If your office space changes for the worst, like in this film, maybe you're being managed out. Clever way companies get rid of unwanted employees, along with dead-end projects. It's all about building a paper trail, proving you're a poor worker. The HR people are going to kill me for disclosing this on TV, but um, they will create documentation that makes the employee look like they're not doing their job. They fake documentation? Uh, they create it. They, it's all, it's all um, how you look at it, right? Shapiro says she was fed up with all that deception, so she quit her high-paying HR job and became a whistleblower. Today, she's on the other side of the fence. Is there an area the company is guiding you towards? You uh, yeah, HR is not your friend. All right, they are the friend of the owners. They're definitely not your friend. But I, I was thinking about her book, which is just a terrific read, best read I've seen on corporate culture. It's called Corporate Confidential, 50 Secrets Your Company Doesn't Want You to Know and What to Do About Them by this uh, woman, Cynthia Shapiro. And I, I was thinking much of her analysis applies to Tucker Carlson. Like, why did Tucker Carlson get fired? And I think ultimately is because the same reason that the millions of people get fired, they irritate their bosses, right? If your boss does not like you, it does not matter how good you are at your job. You're, you're a dead man walking. And Brian Stelter, formerly of CNN, has a book coming out on this network of lies, the epic saga of Fox News, Donald Trump and the battle for American democracy will be released November 14. And Vanity Fair published an excerpt October 31, mainly on Tucker Carlson's firing. Why did it happen? So Here's some excerpts from this Brian Stelter book. When Fox News media CEO Suzanne Scott and Tucker did not like Suzanne Scott. I mean, he'd call her the C word. Right? But she called Tucker Carlson 11.15 on Monday, April 24 of this year and said, we're taking you off the air. She didn't give him a reason. And to Tucker Carlson and his fans, this is absolutely unthinkable. He was the 
highest rated host across all of cable news, and he was suddenly removed from the air. And uh, Tucker Carlson claims that his ouster was a condition of the Dominion suit, but there's no evidence for for that theory. So why did Tucker get uh, get pushed out? Because he consistently outshone his bosses. Now, Tucker was supposed to have hypnotic power of the GOP base. He was supposed to be irreplaceable. But uh, he alienated many of his superiors at Fox News. He was responsible for many internal and external scandals. He fanned many fames, flames of controversy. His firing was inevitable. He'd been fired from CNN and MSNBC earlier in his career. So the best predictor of future results is what's happened in the past. So at Fox, he puffed out his chest. He pretended to be immune to attack. But uh, in the end, right, he got, got pushed out and his staff were not shocked. Right? They knew that they'd pushed the envelope far past the point of a paper cut. It was always going to end badly, one Carlson producer said. We knew we were burning too bright. So Tucker portrayed his production team and only his team as a force for good in the battle against the evils that he took on nightly. His entire show was about us versus them, and this approach extended to the rest of Fox where Tucker Carlson tonight had the appearance of a rogue unit. If you're in a rogue unit at work, right, you're probably not long for that job. So Brian Selter found that uh, Tucker Carlson's producers, writers were far more loyal to him than they were to Fox. Right? They were sabotage, sabotage squad of true believers. Right? They regarded the mothership as almost enemy territory. Because as a Fortune 500 company, Fox Corporation had to have policies in place promoting diversity and supporting transgender employees, the very types of things that Tucker Carlson railed against on the air. Now, Tucker usually genuflected to Fox in public, but uh, his public expressions of gratitude did not fool management because they knew how he acted in private. So he frequently berated Fox News executives. He belittled, belittled people who scrutinized him, and he became unglued. So. Tucker liked to claim that he worked directly for the Murdochs. And so he tried to give off the aura that he didn't have to really report up the chain, such as to Suzanne Scott. So he generally badmouthed Suzanne Scott, as well as the head of public relations, Irina Briganti. And uh, he had many critics of Fox who thought that he displayed a tremendous amount of misogyny, hatred of women. Tucker is very titillated by misogyny, one Fox host said, and uh, Tucker claimed that he knew Lachlan Murdoch personally, but he wasn't really that close with either Lachlan or Rupert Murdoch. The Fox board retained Wachtell, Lipton, Rosen, and Katz, a notoriously powerful white shoe law firm, to investigate Tucker Carlson. And uh, when when management hires investigators, all right, they're usually going to get the investigations that they want. So there are major concerns about liability. And no employer is going to want to have you around if you are likely to be a liability. So why was Tucker fired? Because he repulsed large swaths of the company he worked for. He created a great deal of internal strife with his conspiratorial commentaries. He exposed Fox to defamation suits from the likes of Ray Epps. He offended key executives and seemed to take delight in doing so. His managers believed that he broke the rules and the norms just to show that he could. He strained friendships. 
It triggered so many ad boycotts and turned off so many advertisers that his time slot was not so profitable for Fox. And he committed the cardinal Fox sin. But this applies to any workplace acting like he was bigger than the network he was on. So Stelter concludes it was a tale as old as TV stardom is a potent and often destructive drug. Icarus flew too close to the sun. He got his wings melted. Tucker Carlson flapped away higher and higher until one day the Murdochs just could not tolerate him flapping anymore. He got too big for his boots, Rupert told at least one confidant. So maybe Tucker should have read The 48 Laws of Power, but he definitely should have read Cynthia Shapiro's book, uh, Corporate Confidential, 50 Secrets Your Company Doesn't Want You to Know and What to Do About Them. Back to the If Books Could Kill podcast. Quality of attention means, actually, but... All right, never mind. I, this is stupid. I can't. This is, this is making me <laughs> We're mad. We're spinning our wheels. <laughs> this is making me mad. It's making me mad. Right, okay. So that was Law 6. In Law 14, pose as a friend, work as a spy, he's talking about how, like, sort of elder statesman, he loves this political advisor to Napoleon named Talleyrand. He has 29 anecdotes featuring this Talleyrand guy. And apparently oh in these sort of cocktail party diplomatic conversations, he would constantly be, like, spying on people to try to get intel on them, which honestly is, like, a thing that people do in, like, the diplomatic world to, like, yeah, find sure. whatever. But also not what you should be doing at, like, work happy hours. Yeah. Uh, he says, a trick to try in spying comes from La Rochefoucauld, who wrote, Sincerity is found in very few men and is often the cleverest of ruses. One is sincere in order to draw out the confidence and secrets of the other. By pretending to bear your heart to another person, you make them more likely to reveal their own secrets. Give them a false confession and they will give you a real one. Another <laughs> trick was identity. I, I do use that. I have like ready-made vulnerable sounding things to say in social or, or work situations. So I give the... Or the appearance and the feel like I'm, I'm bearing my soul, but I'm not actually revealing anything that could be damaging. So I, I do think many people benefit from having that kind of faux vulnerability on hand and ready to retail. Identified by the philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer, who suggested vehemently contradicting people you're in conversation with as a way of irritating them, stirring them up so they lose some of the control over their words. In their emotional reaction, they will reveal all kinds of truths about themselves, truths you can later use against them. What? So make up shit to confess to people? Like, I'm addicted to coke. Oh, you're also addicted to coke. Haha, now I know you're addicted to coke. Yeah, I, well, that one at least makes, like, has, like, an inter internal coherence. But the other <laughs> one is just, like, get someone mad and they will start confessing things somehow. Just be, be super fucking irritating to the point where someone blows up at you. And they're like, haha, now I know what makes you blow up. In the course of blowing up, they're like, ah, you piece of shit, I'm addicted to cocaine. <laughs> and oh no. <laughs> oh god, I can't I can't keep doing this, Peter, but there's there's one more. <laughs> this is the perfect like triptych of anecdotes. This is from Law 20. Do not commit to anyone. Oh, he fuck. has a bunch of like weird sort of quasi-dating advice. Just after I got married. He says, when Picasso after early years of poverty, had become the most successful artist in the world, he did not commit himself to this dealer or that dealer. Instead, he appeared to have no interest in their services. This technique drove them wild, and as they fought over him, his prices only rose. So Picasso. When Henry Kissinger, a U.S. Secretary of State, wanted to reach detente with the Soviet Union, he made no concessions or conciliatory gestures, but courted China instead. So use the rules on the Soviet <laughs> Union. He then refers to the author of this Talleyrand biography that he uses a million episodes from. He says, this tactic has a parallel in seduction. Mm. When you want to seduce a woman, Stendfell advises, court her sister first. Rule number 46, bring a blacklight to parties. <laughs> this goes to your one book theory, Peter. It's all one book. Look, look, this does not work for me. I, like, I dated twin sisters. And it, it did not work out well. I, I've dated sisters. It's uh, it's not a 
a useful strategy in my experience. Maybe. Because it's ultimately fucking dating advice. There's no, you can't get like a straight guy writing 500 <laughs> pages about the laws of power without him being yeah. like, here's some, here's some tips for getting pussy too, FYI. Yeah, don't, don't text back. Yeah. And also, fucking someone's sister is not a great way to fuck them. <laughs> Even if you don't think it's morally repugnant, it's just like, this is bad advice. If it works, you have successfully seduced a very unwell person yeah, who, needs, very... who needs therapy so badly. <laughs> Right. Like if <laughs> that's a great point. When you use the game, when you use the these tactics to seduce women, all right, they, they primarily work on the mentally unhinged. If someone is like that vulnerable I to know. insecurity, then they're definitely the kind of person where you can just do the lint trick too, yeah. right? You don't have to go through the, you don't have to go the whole sister route. So this after all this shit, I'm sort of like halfway through the book now, and I'm like Okay, who is this fucking guy? Like, who's this author, right? His name is Robert Greene. Mm -hmm. He hasn't really done anything else. If you Google him, it's like he's one of these people that sort of rode this book to, like, a bunch of other books. That's weird. I thought he would have risen to the top of the global order by now <laughs> using these sick laws of power. I, I do want to say there are two very interesting things about the author of this book. The first, and this is, I think, unique on the show, is that he's an actual subject matter expert. Okay. He grows up in L.A. He grows up in, like, a seemingly middle-class family. And then he goes to the University of Wisconsin-Madison and graduates with, like, a classics degree. And he speaks five languages. What the fuck? He, like, actually knows all this, like, Greek mythology and shit. And when he speaks about, like, the Roman Empire and stuff, he does actually seem to be drawing on some, like, legitimate expertise. I'm sorry, but, like, what a waste of a life. You, 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 you learn five languages and you're like, I'm going to write... Uh, a book about power yes. for the boys. There's also something really funny about how this book comes about. Like, no one ever talks about these books as basically, like, as artifacts of marketing, right? You're, you're coming up with a title and a cover, and that's why, like, 95% of people buy it. It's not really the text of the book. So he basically graduates with this classics degree in 1980, and then he, like, bounces around. He says he has 80 jobs over the course of the next, like, 10 or 12 years. He eventually mm -hmm. moves to Hollywood and tries to make it as a screenwriter. And, like, he has zero IMDb credits other than the Quibi series. So it doesn't seem that that, like, hit for him. This is the Ben Shapiro arc. He somehow gets this fellowship in Italy. I think Italian is one of the languages that he speaks. And he basically meets a book marketer, this guy that, like, does coffee table books, named Juiced Elfers, who's actually listed in some printings as a co-author of this book. And then he says that, like, the genesis of this book was that he's, like, telling this book marketer guy, he's like, I've been trying to write a biography of Julius Caesar for the last like five years but like I just can't really I don't know if it's like a motivation thing or he can't really get the framing or whatever but like that just isn't working this mm -hmm. Julius Caesar biography and then my theory is like between the lines this guy who's like a book marketer is yeah. like why don't you just put together all your Greek and Roman shit into like a fake ass self-help book your Julius Caesar biography isn't coming together what if I propose to you doing something much dumber <laughs> would you like that so the second interesting thing about Robert Greene, I cannot fucking believe this, is that he actually has good politics. Ooh. So I'm going to send you an excerpt from an interview that he gave to The Guardian in 2012. He is now working with labor organizers in Latin America, and his liberal politics disappoint some of his fans in the business world who expect him to be a champion of the ruthless go-getter. I'm a huge Obama supporter, he says. Romney is Satan to me. The great thing about America is that you can come from the worst circumstances and become something remarkable. It's Jay-Z and 50 Cent and Obama and my Jewish ancestors. That's the America we want to celebrate, not the vulture capitalist. These morons like Mitt Romney, they produce nothing. Republicans are feeding off fairy tales, and that's what did them in this year. And hopefully we'll keep doing them in forever because there are a lot of scoundrels. I forgive him. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> that's hey, Robert Greene, author of the 48 Laws of Power. Okay, so I... I Read Corporate Confidential yesterday, 50 Secrets Your Company Doesn't Want You to Know What to Do About Them. And then as I was out for my morning constitutional today, 
I thought I would reread Cynthia Shapiro's 2005 classic and look for where its analysis applies to people like Tucker Carlson. And remember Glenn Beck? Glenn Beck was a ratings monster on Fox News between 2009 and 2011, but he too got too big for the brand, and so they they fired him. So here are some books, here are some excerpts from Corporate Confidential that I think apply to people like Tucker Carlson, have applied to millions of people, I think. So number one, remember your, your... company's number one motivation is protection, right? If a company feels you are opening them up to any severe liability or inconvenience, even if you are 100% justified, they will remove you as quickly as possible, right? When you put your own needs ahead of a company's need for protection, you are red flagging yourself as someone who's not a team player and cannot be trusted. Tucker Carlson was clearly not a team player. Today's litigious society, many companies value protection above all else. So threatening a company's sense of protection is the number one cause of job loss. I think that's a great point. Threatening a company's sense of protection is the number one cause of job loss. If you don't show support, right? If your company feels for whatever reason you do not openly and enthusiastically support the company, their policies, their positions, and their direction, you will be out, right? Companies don't like critics. Even if you have the best skills in the company, you will have no job security. None of your needs will be met. No doors will be open to you unless the company trusts you. Trust is based on the company's perception of you. Whatever that perception is, that will determine your job security and your value. So you have to learn what the company's true agendas are. You can't go to the website or statements Right? You have to look at what your company truly protects, rewards, and values. And then hold up a mirror to yourself and evaluate your actions in the workplace. Look at your actions through the eyes of an owner. Do you outwardly act like someone who supports the company, its policies, its interests, no matter what you think on the inside? Do you openly behave and speak like someone with ownership and passion or someone just looking for a paycheck? Look at your actions through the lens of the company's real values. How close in alignment do your actions seem when viewed from the outside? So Tucker Carlson was was operating a show that was, at, in large part, at war with the rest of Fox News. Because any legal complication for the company, right, you cause any legal complication for the company, right, and uh, Fox News was getting sued because of Tucker Carlson, such as by Ray Epps, right, that is going to wreck your career in the company, right? Legal matters cost your company huge amounts of money and wasted hours for high-level people who should be spending their time you know, making money, not evaluating you know, situations that lead to lawsuits. So one lawsuit, such as what uh, Fox suffered with Dominion, all right, they lost, what was it, uh, a billion dollars, essentially, to settle the Dominion lawsuit. Right. If you don't seem like you are personally feeling vested in, in the ownership of the company and its interests, all right, you're not going to be viewed as loyal. Putting yourself and your personal interests before the company will make you seem like a traitor, not to be trusted and not to be invested in. Tucker Carlson put himself and his interests before Fox News, and so he was widely regarded within Fox News as a traitor. Right. The closer you bring yourself into the appearance of alignment through your daily actions and choices, 
with the company, the more favorable the company's opinions of you will be and the more secure your job will be. But highly skilled employees with seemingly great value to their organization, such as Tucker Carlson, are fired every day because they are perceived to be a potential risk and they cannot be trusted. Companies will tend to value younger employees more than older employees because they have enthusiasm, passion, fresh thinking, energy, and relatively low cost. Tucker Carlson was very high cost, and he was in his 50s. Companies value older employees for experience, knowledge, professionalism, consistency, and level-headedness. But older employees lack flexibility. They tend to stagnate in their thinking. They tend to have a lot of health issues. So companies look at your appearance as a sign of the way you think. Dated clothing translates into dated thinking. No matter how good you are at your job, a dated appearance will give you an image of someone behind the time, someone who might keep the company from moving forward. There's no right to free speech in the workplace, right? When you go to work, you're effectively a slave, right? You are an instrument. You are like software for a company, right? You say anything against the company or its policies, it's very likely to be retaliation, right? Companies will not employ someone who's speaking out against their policies, their interests, their work environment, their practices. Right? Companies only want employees who are openly supportive, not subversive. Tucker Carlson was subversive. Employees may feel it's their right to speak out on a policy they disagree with or a boss is causing problems. Right? Tucker felt free to speak out privately against all sorts of Fox policies and Fox executives. Felt free to talk about situations that made him unhappy or less productive. Yeah, it's your right, but every time you voice a negative opinion, you are creating an image of yourself as a traitor, as a victim, as unlucky, as unsuccessful as someone to get rid of. Negativity is highly contagious. Companies know all it takes is one rotten apple to turn a group of happy employees into a mass of disgruntled workers, seething with the seeming injustices of their situation. Now, who is the person who has tremendous power over your career? It's your boss. Without his support, your career goes nowhere. Bosses do not take kindly to insubordination. You'll be expected to support your boss no matter your personal feelings. You have to respect your boss if for no other reason than his ability to propel or destroy your career. Tucker Carlson clearly did not respect his bosses at Fox News and they destroyed him. So in the eyes of the company, you are your boss's opinion of you. Your job security lies solely in your boss's hands. It's just way too tempting to remove any employee who becomes a thorn in the side or who are perceived as unsupportive or unfriendly. It's just too tempting. So no matter your skills, ability, or fairness, whether you stay or whether you get fired, it's largely going to be based on whether or not the boss likes you. You may think bosses come and go, but their feelings about you will haunt you for the rest of your career in references, lost opportunities, HR files. Right? You get a new boss who's very likely to ask the previous boss who the troublemakers are and who to watch out for. Every time you interview for a job, your potential new employer will track down your previous bosses to get their opinions of you. So pitting yourself against the boss is a losing battle because companies always side with, the with their managers. Right? A company will always take the manager's word over yours. That's the way the world works. This is a much smarter guide to power than the Robert Greene book. It's basically impossible to swear this with the book. It's fascinating. Is it the same guy? I, I would like, to... <laughs> like I Googled, like I forgot to put in his birth date and it's the wrong Robert Greene. <laughs> no, but you know it's the right one because he's talking about Jay-Z and 50 Cent, who presumably yeah. he, he knows of their existence because they talked about his book, right? No, he wrote, he co-wrote a book with 50 Cent called The 50th Law. You're really making me wonder what the 49th Law is. But then what 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 is interesting to me is he also has the same blind spot that we see in so many of the authors where 
he he doesn't seem to think that he's doing anything to promote this worldview. So in the Guardian interview, mm. it says Green states that he doesn't try to follow all of his advice. Anybody who did, he says, would be a horrible, ugly person to be around. Why do these authors keep doing this shit? I do genuinely find this fascinating. I, I listen to a bunch of podcast interviews with him where he talks about like he believes in climate change. After 2016, he started going on TV to talk about Trump and be like, this guy is not applying my rules. He kind of is. I'm sorry, but is there anyone who's doing this better? Is there, <laughs> Seriously. Is there anyone who's, who's more tightly adhering to the 48 laws of power than Donald Trump? Come on. But then to me, the core of his blind spot is this thing where he says, oh, I'm not telling you to do anything. I'm just telling you how the world works. And the chat says, I've heard commentators talk about the future of Israel surviving, but in a state of de-Zionization, how far are these hypotheses based in reality? Well, Israel is a small country, all right? It's uh, just seven miles wide in some places. So Israel just has to screw up once, and it is done. So it can never make any major mistake, or it's just over. So the state of Israel is precarious, in a precarious position. I. I don't see how that will change. Right. If you look back at what he said in the intro of like, oh, the lessons from 3000 years of history, it's like he mentions like great statesmen and also seducers and con artists. Right. What he means by power is manipulation. Right. He doesn't think that there's any power in being honest or in being right. 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 And he never uses anecdotes from, I mean, these are cliched example, but like Martin Luther King, Gandhi, I don't know, Florence Nightingale. Mm -hmm. He does have a couple of anecdotes about FDR, but only the anecdotes where FDR had to like lie and scheme uh. to get his way. Like he's not interested in the kind of power that comes from just like honesty and charisma. I, I don't, I don't get this. I, I assume that Okay, so what's charisma? Charisma is when you give people energy, right? You, you may have a favorite podcast, a YouTube show, uh, music, uh, personalities that, that give you energy, right? Someone who transmits energy, you, you can call them charismatic. Another definition of charisma, people who are able to pull off the seemingly impossible. When you pull off the seemingly impossible, you get more of a following, and therefore you get more resources, and so you're better able to pull off the seemingly impossible again. But eventually you will, you know, fall on your face. So charisma only gets you so far. But uh, back to this book on corporate secrets and how it applies to people like Tucker Carlson and Glenn Beck and millions of other people. As a worker, you are there for the sole purpose of making your boss look good, making your boss appear successful. It doesn't matter if you like your boss. Right? All managers are in a precarious position. They are squeezed from both sides. They operate in a glass house. They will react strongly to someone they think is trying to throw stones at them. They will retaliate and the company will back them. Do not challenge or threaten your boss ever. Bosses don't like to be cornered, attacked, or accused, even in private. Employees, and I see this a lot, employees think they're hired for their smarts and then eager to show how much they know. They blurt out their ideas and suggestions. They, they correct their bosses in meetings. They offer up ways to make things better. They submit presentations on how procedures can be improved. Well, if you do all this before you've earned the right, it comes off as nothing more than criticism of the current workings of the company. Companies don't want your smarts unless you've shown respect first. So it doesn't matter your intentions. Voicing your opinion before you've earned the right will make your boss feel threatened. Your company will see you as disruptive. So I see this with a lot of new employees who gotten hired through some kind of personal connection. And they just come in and they just start 
you know, spouting off suggestions and talking in a very familiar way with people who are above them. And it, it's not a winning strategy, right? You have to show respect first for days, weeks, and then only give your opinion when it is requested. Never take the spotlight away from your boss, Tucker Carlson, Glenn Beck, for consistently taking the spotlight away from Fox News. Uh, if you become known as a major gossip monger at work, and uh, Tucker Carlson was a major gossip monger, that's not good for your career. Companies do not like loose lips. doesn't matter what you like to gossip about. Companies will judge you by association. So not only do you have to stay away from behaviors that companies don't want, you have to stay away from those employees who indulge in those behaviors. So if the company sees that you spend time with those who spread gossip and negativity, they will assume you share those views. Right? You may refrain from gossip, but if you hang out with a gossiping crowd, you will be associated with them. Right? You will be sidelined by your associations. That's just the way it works. So Fox News makes money by meeting the needs of a particular niche. It does not make money when people such as Glenn Beck and Tucker Carlson trigger massive advertising boycotts. And executives don't like headaches, and Tucker and Glenn created a lot of headaches. So many Fox executives knew that Tucker Carlson despised them, so they were glad for an opportunity to let him go. And Glenn Beck, as I mentioned, he got monster ratings for Fox News, but he was pushed out because he was too much trouble. And Gabriel Sherman wrote about this in his 2014 book, The Loudest Voice in the Room, How the Brilliant bombastic Roger Ailes built Fox News and divided a country. So talking about Fox, Roger Ailes in 2009, the most potent force in Fox's reinvention of Obama was Glenn Beck, who debuted in the 5 p.m. time slot the day before Obama's inauguration. Within weeks, he was pulling in more than 2 million viewers a day, a 50% increase. Roger Ailes was usually unsparing in his praise of his host, but he told Glenn Beck, you're probably the most uniquely talented person on TV I've seen. When Roger Ailes hired Glenn Beck from CNN, he imagined him hosting a conventional cable news talk show. But Glenn Beck had a different idea. He conceived his program as an anti-TV show, partly because Glenn Beck said he didn't like television. And so his show featured Glenn Beck roaming his set in plain view of the cameraman and cables. There'd be few guests. Instead, his studio was like a prairie schoolhouse where he delivered a daily sermon, like lectures before a chalkboard, in which he traced a web connecting his progressive enemies, George Soros, Central among them. So Glenn Beck broke the mold at Fox News. Unlike most of the unknowns and has-beens that Roger Ailes recruited, Glenn Beck joined Fox when he was a rising star. He's also a driven businessman. He founded his own company. He brought in executives to run it. He had his own team of aggressive PR counselors who'd worked with Katie Couric and Harvey Weinstein. Glenn Beck built on Roger Ailes' playbook. He made the Culture Wars personal. He made the Fox News id visible. He said things that were dredged up from the right-wing subconscious, that Obama's racist against white people, that Nazi tactics are progressive tactics. Glenn Beck crossed lines that weren't supposed to be crossed even at Fox. And the presentation, which was childlike, angry, and tearful, was as remarkable as the content. But he burned too brightly. Roger Ailes' biggest stars in 2010-11, Glenn Beck and Sarah Palin, were simply too big. They were burning too hot. Glenn Beck's numbers were 
about three million a day, a stunning achievement. Never seen anyone build an audience this fast, Rogers told executives. But Glenn Beck was engulfing Fox itself. Glenn Beck did not follow his boss's directives, Roger Ailes' directives. And the other big names at Fox were diminished by Glenn Beck's ascent, and they were speaking up about it. Sean Hannity was complaining. Bill O'Reilly would have on uh, Glenn Beck as a guest, and then Hannity would complain more. Then all sorts of uh, Fox employees had grievances about Glenn Beck. So finally, I think uh, 2011, March 28, Roger Ailes called Glenn back to his office and uh, let him go. So the relationship was always strained, right? In early 2009, Fox News denied a request from Glenn Beck's production team to allow Glenn Beck's head writer and close friend, Pat Gray, to accompany Beck to the Fox News studio for his daily program. And uh, Roger Ailes had a great deal of wariness about Glenn Beck's staff. I don't want too many of his people... Here, he told an executive. Then, remember Glenn Beck's Restoring Honor rally? He gathered 300,000 of his devoted followers in front of the Lincoln Memorial for an August 2010 anniversary of Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, but Fox executives showed little enthusiasm. And Fox gave the event scant coverage. CNN did more to cover it. Now, Glenn Beck could not understand why Roger Ailes did not actively promote an event that drew so many potential Fox viewers. And Roger Ailes' PR hatchet man, Brian Lewis, was trying to sell Roger Ailes on the idea that Glenn Beck had been on the cover of Forbes magazine, Time magazine, the New York Times magazine, as building a power base independent of Fox. And Glenn Beck and, I mean, Roger Ailes and Brian Lewis resented this independent power base, right? They resented that Glenn Beck felt that he was bigger than Fox News. And Roger Ailes agreed, talent should never eclipse the brand. And so from... That day on, that was Roger's theme with Glenn Beck. He didn't appreciate the platform Fox had given him, and he needed to be pushed out. Glenn Beck launched The Blaze, a conservative news website, and Fox told Glenn Beck he couldn't promote his new venture on the air. At times, The Blaze undermined stories that uh, Fox News was pushing. So even though he had millions of viewers, three million viewers, just like Tucker Carlson, in the end, because he was seen as you know, not loyal to the company, he was pushed out. The reason we see this from these authors is basically their inability to admit to themselves that like, their sort of primary output into this world, the thing that they're known the most for, is sort of evil. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And so instead, they have to imagine that it wasn't quite as bad as people are saying that it was. I also think another very important element of his blind spot is... He's never actually had power. Okay. One of the interesting things that he says in various interviews is that one of the inspirations for the book was trying to be a Hollywood screenwriter. Mm -hmm. And some of the laws that he's come... And there's a comment in the chat. So you're a critic of Bibi? I I guess I'm a critic of of everyone. I I just stand back and and observe. I I don't think I'm any more a critic of Bibi than I am a critic of Donald Trump or or Joe Biden. I guess I'm just a a critic in, in general. I don't think I burn with you know, uh, strong emotional feelings in any direction against or for Bibi Netanyahu or any political leader. Coming up with are like the way that he was treated by Hollywood executives, mm. right? This thing of like blaming people when something goes wrong, uh-huh. never letting people know your intentions. What he's doing is he's looking at the ways that he was treated when he didn't have any power. Mm-hmm. And he is 
projecting this necessity onto them. You must behave like this. Right. But that's not actually true. What he's basically doing is playing out his bitterness and resentment and hurt at the way that he was treated when he was at the bottom of the ladder. I really like how this his sort of arc is just like a, a great himboification. He's like this <laughs> this brilliant, you know, historian, knows multiple languages. And then he's like, mm. no, I'm gonna I'm gonna write a self-help book get rich and dumb yeah he just he wanted to like be on a beach just trying to get laid or something and he had never done that he was yeah you know, he was too much of a nerd so i i'm proud of him his next book is called the art of seduction oh fuck yes dude okay why does this keep happening because remember the tim ferris book his next book also had like long uh digressions about seduction it's so fucking weird these guys are like just getting like book tour pussy after their first book hits <laughs> And then they're like, oh, you know what? You know what? I'm going to write a whole book about this. Yeah, it's like uh, they go on these book tours and every journalist is like, but have you had sex? And they're like, actually. Actually, yes. So to get back to the book, the third pattern in the 48 Laws that I want to talk about is these weird flashes of insight uh -huh. that are immediately used for evil. So <laughs> Law 27 is play on people's need to believe to create a cult-like following. Okay. And he gives all these steps of like how to create a cult. So here's the opening. To create a cult, you must first attract attention. This you should do not through actions, which are too clear and readable, but through words, which are hazy and deceptive. Your initial speeches, conversations, and interviews must include two elements. On the one hand, the promise of something great and transformative, and on the other, a total vagueness. To make your vagueness attractive, use words of great resonance but cloudy meaning, words full of heat and enthusiasm. Fancy titles for simple things are helpful, as are the use of numbers and the creation of new words for vague concepts. All of these create the impression of specialized knowledge, giving you a veneer of profundity. He's telling you how to write an airport book. Yeah. This is like... Okay, that's that's uh, pretty pretty creepy. All right, U.S. seems to be shifting its attitudes in the israel these kind of conflicts war. are only ever ultimately uh, solved politically or they're not solved at all um and so that is not something that uh, the current administration the most right wing in israeli history is really willing to address right now and again that is a source of enormous frustration for everyone right this is the times of london world affairs editor catherine phillip says America is becoming enormously frustrated with Netanyahu's government. But particularly the Americans. I, I always remember when the, the Ukraine war started, one of, the, one of the questions that everybody asked was, you know, what, what does victory for Ukraine look like? Um, and it seems that there were different views of that from different parties around the world. And it seems maybe we're in a similar situation, does it, between the US and Israel with where this particular war goes? Well, I think where the US and Israel are on the same page is that they wish to see the end of Hamas and Hamas removed as um, the governing power as well as the aggressor in from Gaza towards Israel. Um, the, the question is really how you go about doing that. Is it achievable and what you do afterwards? So I think one of the things that's, well, two things causing intense anxiety at the moment with the Americans. Um, one is the uh, the civilian death toll in Gaza and the level of destruction, the intensity of the destruction, um, and seeing the effect that's having on the public mood around the world, uh, you know, something of a backlash beginning. Um, and also the fact that they don't uh, feel very confident that uh, Israel has a plan for what comes after. And um, I gather that all the American diplomats and uh, officials who've come through and spoken to uh, Benjamin Netanyahu have found him barely willing, I think was the phrase they used, to, to discuss okay, the next let's uh, welcome um, so Black back to the show. San Francisco, I'm listening. <laughs> Blessings, bro. 
Classic. Little uh, little afternoon delight, bro. What's going on? You're changing schedule. Yeah, the world's a complicated place, and so am I, bro. I've got hidden hidden levels of depth. Are, are you doing this 48 hours of uh, stuff just to get my dander up? No, bro. I, I think it's, they have some interesting yeah. critiques. Yeah, I know, but I, I just I can't believe people this quote-unquote smart could sort of miss, just miss the the whole tone and posture of this book. And they're taking it so literally as if he's writing a handbook for people to actually follow, right? That's the tone they're taking, and it's the wrong tone. They didn't read the introduction to understand, you know, what the intention of this book was, you know. Yeah, and the intention I, I, yeah. is that he's he's explaining how the world works. He's not trying to say this is what's what's the best way to live. Correct, correct. And and he he teases out some real subtleties, uh, and he puts them on paper. I think in a way that most people haven't done. I think it's just uh, it's not a practical manual like how to get how to get more power. That's not the book he's writing. Anyway. No, I, I think that's a that's a fair critique. Okay, so you know, I don't know why I get so wrangled by this. I guess, uh, you know, I've always uh, respected this book, and I feel like they're dissing it. And one of these guys sounds like a woman, and then I'm like, he's a man. Yeah, no, he's just gay. I mean, yeah, no, but that voice is so feminine. I mean, that's not even on the margins. I mean, he would fool, I think, ninety-five percent of any listener. Don't you think? Yeah, he seems to consistently. Yeah, it it uh, it it, it uh, bothered me, and yeah. and most people I, I played excerpts from it, it bothers bothers them. But what what you're saying uh, underneath it, it reminds me that we have you know things that we value in the world, and they become a part of ourselves. So the the Dallas Cowboys have fortunes that rise and fall, and that. You know, that affects me. And if you love your car, I remember I loved my car and then I, I, I crashed my car and it was just devastating because I'd extended myself into the car. And so when we have, we have favorite books and favorite podcasts and favorite, you know, possessions, you know, anything that we love becomes an extension of ourselves. That's right. That's right. You hate, you hate what threatens what you love. Yes. Particularly if, if it has a, a feminine voice. The, if, I can quote, if I can quote a great sage of the 21st century. <laughs> uh, so, uh, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I, didn't, I really didn't have too much to say. I mean, uh, beyond what I'd already said. Um, I'm off for a walk. It's a you know, gorgeous day today. I got up at 5 this morning. I started work at 5. Can you believe that? Oh, muzzle time. What time do you normally get up and what time do you normally start working? <clears throat> normally I get up at around 6.30, 6, and then start working around 7. So uh, I really, like, blew the doors off it. Because after this, the clocks change, I like to get up and not miss a single minute of sunlight. I like to be up because uh, there's so little sunlight around. I try to, you know, take in all of it because it's so precious. Have you heard of this book, uh, Corporate Confidential, 50 Secrets Your Company Doesn't Want You to Know and What to Do About Them? 
by um, Cynthia Shapiro? No, uh, you were reading from it earlier, and I, I guess it's something I'd be interested in uh, learning. I feel like I've picked up a lot of this stuff over the years, but maybe there's things I'm working. Oh, this is what I want to tell you. Uh, do you know um, Ray Dalio? Oh, what's his name? Dalio. Yeah, yeah, Ray Dalio. There's a devastating new book out about him. Yes, yes. Did you see the video uh, Patrick uh, Boyle did about him? He interviewed the author yesterday. Oh no! And it's oh, it's a must-watch. Must-watch. Oh, okay. I'll send you a link if you need it. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's definitely right up your alley. Like this guy is so much, so much Today's PR. Video. He's got such a um, PR game. Makes him seem, you know, he makes himself seem like this sort of, you know, avuncular guy that's just got all this practical, wholesome wisdom and. You know, he just lays it out there for you, and voila, you can be a billionaire too. And <clears throat> underneath the curtains, it's a totally different scene. It's really spellbinding because I've been taken in by this Ray guy, this uh, Ray Dalio guy. Uh, but yeah, definitely uh, look forward material. Okay, the video is called uh, Ray Dalio's Principles The Secret to His Success, and there's a devastating New York Times book review. Uh, essay on this new book on Ray Dalio. Okay, yeah. So do those, but also watch the interview of the author himself. This guy, Patrick Boyle, um, he's a finance profe uh, professor at uh, University of London somewhere, and he has just got an incredibly crisp, dry sense of humor, you know, just real old school, real first-class wit. He's just one of the better figures on YouTube. Okay, I just uh, I just smashed subscribe, bro. All right, good, 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 good. Okay, well, I think that's all I got. Sorry. Okay, blessings, bro. All right, blessings. All right, peace. Shalom. Okay, peace out. Bye. All right, let's uh, get a little bit more here from the Times of London on U.S. shifting its attitude in the Israel-Gaza war and weakening support of Bibi Netanyahu's regime. The problem is the Isra Israelis will talk, uh, sorry, if, if officials, government officials will talk about a window of legitimacy that they believe they have um, because of the absolute horror of, of the Hamas attacks and what they did and that brutality. That they, I think it, they felt that they had um, uh, more um, backing to go in hard. Um, but a few things have been happening since that have, we've seen some shifting language from the different sides. So, for example, um, in on October the 18th, the Americans actually uh, vetoed a UN resolution calling for a humanitarian pause. Um, now, that is not a ceasefire, which is also, of course, a very live issue, including in the UK, whether you support an, a ceasefire or not. Um, a humanitarian pause would be something to get more aid in. And this is something the Americans seem to have changed their tune on. So they vetoed that uh, resolution. And I think that they don't want um, Israel's hand to be forced by the UN, but they would like that pause now. So they've started talking about it. And then we saw, I think it was uh, two nights ago, uh, Netanyahu gave an, um, an interview to American television news. And he said that they were prepared to uh, consider these pauses. He called them tactical little pauses. That was read in Washington of, ah, oh, we've got through to him. He's listening to us. But then he went on to say that um, Israel would probably have to be in charge of security over Gaza for an indefinite period. And I, I think that immediately, uh, you know, set, um, had the hackles up in Washington and people were concerned, what on earth does he mean by that? Because it sounds rather like an Israeli reoccupation of Gaza. So um, what the Americans have rushed out and said is that, no, they don't uh, support that that happening and an Israeli reoccupation, and then again they've had to recalibrate and say, well, it might 
be necessary for a very limited amount of time. So I think we've, you know, we're seeing both sides signaling what they want, but the Americans very clearly trying to pull the Israelis in a direction um, that, uh, that, that can calm things down. Do you think that, assuming they do get what, what you know, that one bit of, of commonality, i.e. getting rid of Hamas, that at some point America might say to Israel, do you know what, that you have to um, find a way to give the Palestinian people some land of their own, that there, that there has to be a state in order that this can be a lasting solution? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that's you know, a month into this um, is being talked about a lot more. It's very hard to see how you can actually one, destroy Hamas even militarily, but two, how you can destroy, um, you know, the, the, the oh, sorry, how, how you can end the issue of um, uh, the fight for a Palestinian state um, if that if that desire still exists. You can't kill it off militarily. And, you know, these kind of conflicts are only ever ultimately uh, solved politically or they're not solved at all. Um, and so that is not something that uh, the current administration, the most right wing in Israeli history, is really willing to address right now. And again, that is a source of enormous frustration for everyone, but particularly the Americans. Um, so you, you're seeing them talking more and more about it in the context of uh, this offensive. And in fact, the, you know, the G7 have just come out with a statement. Obviously, America signed on to that in which they reiterate their support for a two state solution. Um, but again, we've got to remember here that um, Benjamin Netanyahu is not an Israeli leader who has ever really wanted to be the man who gave over um, land to the Palestinians for a state. That's not what he wants his legacy to be. And he's in the last couple of days come up under some pretty heavy criticism, <clears throat> excuse me, from two of his uh, predecessors, Ehud Barrett and um, Olmart, who've said, you know, this, this this is a consequence of your attempts to manage the Palestinian situation and never to solve it. So um, that is a very live issue. All right, let's get some, John. Really careful in terms of how many civilians that they kill. Uh, I mean, they've already killed a substantial number of civilians. Uh, I think the number is close to 6,000 at this point, and uh, approximately 2,500 of those 6,000 people that the Israelis have killed are uh, children. So this is beginning to look... Mishaimer says that this Middle East conflict is even more dangerous than the Ukraine war. Very bad for Israel and for the United States, which, of course, is joined at the hip with Israel. And the Americans are well aware, and I would imagine even some Israelis are well aware, that this could lead to unending trouble uh, in terms of Israel's standing in the world. So there are limits to how many civilians they can kill. And uh, I think the Americans are telling them that they should uh, be very careful uh, in this regard, moving forward. But see, this causes an enormous problem for the Israelis because then they really can't deal with Hamas. Uh, they can't eliminate Hamas. The only way they can possibly eliminate Hamas is to go in with massive force and kill huge numbers of civilians. And this is, I don't think, doable. I think once they start going down that road, world opinion and even Western opinion and even American opinion will put tremendous pressure on them to back off. And the end result is that they will back off or they will reduce the killing. And the end result is that Hamas will survive uh, to fight another day. Uh, again, the Israelis are damned if they do and damned if they don't. Well, the prior to this, the outbreak of this war, there were some neoconservative outlets, journals in the United States that essentially were arguing that it's time for the United States to cut off aid to Israel, or more so, it's time for the, United, for the Israelis to get off of United States aid because, precisely because they say it restrains the Israelis from doing what they know is in their national security or national interest to do. They should be bombing Iran. They should be using a lot more force against the Palestinians. And it's dependence on this U.S. aid that is the thing that constrains them. And then you have at the same time in that economist essay I mentioned by Naftali Bennett, the former uh, Israeli prime minister, right before. Man, Glenn. Uh, 
Glenn, he, Glenn Greenwell, man, his question is just way too long. All right, the shorter the question, the better, mate. For Netanyahu returned, part of what he was arguing was, look, we're appreciative of American aid, but we are in a position now after this attack where we're not going to allow the Americans or world opinion any longer to stop us from doing what we know we need to do. And, you know, you wrote the definitive book, which I actually want to ask you about in a second, which was the Israel lobby with uh, Professor Walt, who we just had on the show a couple of weeks ago, about the state of American public opinion as it pertains to Israel and the efficacy of a lobby that is in Washington, like many other lobbies that are powerful. They have a powerful lobby as well to keep America on Israel's side when it comes to foreign policy. So heading into a 2024 election, I guess what I'm asking is, is there maneuverability for the Biden administration to put so much pressure on Israel to try and restrain it, aren't, will they, won't they be afraid that Netanyahu might say, look, Joe Biden is kind of interfering with what we're trying to do, just like Netanyahu had kind of had open warfare with Obama during the Obama years, and the White House would be afraid that that could be politically harmful to it if that breaks out into public? I think there's no question that you can imagine a situation where the United States tries to put serious pressure on Israel uh, to uh, uh, modulate the attack in Gaza. Uh, to uh, limit the amount of force that they use and the Israelis resist. I mean, you can imagine that situation. The question then becomes how much pressure is the United States willing to put on Israel? How desperate is the United States? And uh, it's very hard to say because there's no question that the lobby, Israel's supporters, uh, Israel's staunch supporters in the United States will put pressure on the White House not to put pressure on Israel, for the White House not to put pressure on Israel. That's likely to happen. But if the United States is desperate enough, if it feels that it just has to put an end to this conflict in Gaza or it has to limit what the Israelis are doing, I believe the administration will do what they have to do. Uh, But am I 100 percent certain of that? No. But all of this shows you, Glenn, how much of a problem we face because we are joined at the hip with Israel. One of the points that Steve and I made in the book is that it would be much better for the United States and indeed much better for Israel if we treated it as a normal country. And if we treated Israel as a normal country, we would now have more distance between ourselves and Israel, and it would be easier for us to put pressure on the Israelis. But given the fact that the Biden administration has gone to enormous lengths to tie itself to Israel, uh, it does not have a whole heck of a lot of flexibility at this point. And the yeah, it's kind of bizarre the extent that uh, the Biden administration has tried to tie itself to Israel with even sending Joe Biden to Israel during a time of war. I don't see how this is in America's best interest. You are just precipitating more 9-11 style attacks. Interesting question is, as the crisis uh, evolves over time, or maybe I should say as the war evolves over time, uh, you know, will the United States feel that it's in a position where it, has to, where it has to get some distance between itself and Israel and treat Israel more like a normal country? Can we just talk about that? Okay, here's uh, a terrific interview with the author of a new book on Ray Dalio. The book just came out today, so let's talk to Rob and see what he has to say. Welcome to the podcast. I very much enjoyed reading your book. I got it maybe about a week ago and read it once again, kind of like Zeke's book. I read it in a day or two just because it's quite a compelling read and it's it's a topic I'm quite interested in. Um, can you tell me about how you first, like what made you decide to write a book about Ray Dalio and Bridgewater? Sure. And first of all, thank you for having me on. Ray Dalio and Bridgewater have sort of been a part of my life now for probably close to a decade and a half. I actually got my, my teeth started in financial journalism at a hedge fund trade publication, and they were writing a cover story about Bridgewater. 
and when I joined in 2012. So really since then, it's been, it's been a topic for me. I've been sort of gobsmacked by Ray's entire publicity tour over the past six or so years. You know, he wrote his own book, Principles, Life and Work. And I think you can, you, if you know nothing else about my book, you should know that I believe I've written the first nonfiction book about Ray Dalio and, and the principles. This is the first book I've received for a review that came with an NDA. So obviously there's a certain amount of controversy around this book. Um, and I see also it's filled with footnotes from mm. uh, Bridgewater lawyers kind of clarifying their side of the story. Has mm. Ray read the entire book or just parts of it? And kind of how does he feel about it? Well, well I, I think we'll probably hear pretty soon how, how he feels about it. Uh, we're recording this right before the book comes out. You're right. You did sign an NDA. This has been such an, an incredibly exciting, nerve-wracking journey for me. I told Ray about this book personally in, in mid-2020, and he responded very poorly. I told him in an email. And almost uninterrupted since then, before a word was written of this book, he's been hiring law firms and PR firms to yell at me, to pressure my publisher. They threatened us with a multi-billion dollar lawsuit. This is all literally before the book was written, while I'm still talking to people about it. And Just because he doesn't trust you to tell a story that he'll like? It's fair to say that Ray doesn't really like any independent journalism about him that is less than 100% laudatory. It's not just me. I currently Most people love nothing more than uh, being interviewed, right? Most people love nothing more than being the center of attention. Most people love nothing more than being on uh, newspaper and magazine covers. I've been up my share of newspaper and magazine covers, and I've been on 60 Minutes and Entertainment Tonight and uh, ABC News, etc. And yeah, it's it's a high. But then people love nothing more than being interviewed, being the center of attention. They hate nothing more and seeing their words finally end up in print. So my my favorite model, moral guide is what would this action or this uh, this language look like if it was fairly reported on the front page of the New York Times? Certainly write for the New York Times, but I was a Wall Street Journal reporter for most of the time I was writing this book. There are New York Times reporters that he has attacked, you know, Business Insider, pretty, pretty much anyone. Um, of course, other colleagues at the Wall Street Journal. Now, he doesn't have a copy of the book, but... I did hire a fact checker, and the fact checker sent Ray every single fact, to my knowledge, that's in this book. There were lawyers, instead of responding to the fact checker, he hired a bunch of libel attorneys to threaten a lot of lawsuits. They sent us hundreds of pages of letters, and I incorporated their feedback. Look, I listened. He, he didn't want to be interviewed. In a way, I didn't need him to be interviewed. He's done a lot of interviews. I think I could probably cosplay an interview as Ray Dalio at, at this point. And, and you have interviewed him multiple times in the past, right? Like for the Wall Street Journal and so on. Oh, oh yes. The wonderful thing about Bridgewater for many years was that it was sort of like the easiest hedge fund ever to write about because Ray would just get on the phone and just couldn't stop talking. So uh, I, I've always heard his perspective. I'm open to hearing more of it now. But um, look, I think it's time for other people's voices to be heard. That's what this book is about. When I read this book, there's, you know, there, there's plenty of skepticism in there. But I also felt that there were a lot of insights as to what made Ray successful and maybe even stories he wouldn't want to tell himself, but just even about his skill at, uh, you know, getting along with people. He, uh, you know, kind of made good and influential friends. He was well read to the extent that a, a rather wealthy family took him under their mm. wing. And, uh, you know, uh, he was even sort of asked by uh, this very wealthy family to sort of put some polish on their grandchild. You know, they, they saw that much. And uh, chat says, laws of power say viciously defend your reputation. 
Well, th there's a problem with that in that your reputation does not belong to you. It, it resides in the minds of other people. And you, if you try to, you know, too viciously defend your, your reputation, right, uh, normal disinterested observers may well experience it as, you know, some kind of attack on their own mental processes. Right? I don't own my reputation. My reputation rests in your head and your head and your head. So you can do wise things, but then take them too far to too much of an extreme and the wise things become maladaptive. So to me, there's maybe a different perspective on what brought about Ray's success, but a different perspective doesn't, you know, it doesn't mean that either is necessarily right or wrong. What, what well, do you think about that? I think it's really interesting what you just brought up because I do go into Ray's origin story. Ray has told his own origin story many, many times, including in his own autobiography. But what he... I think he may have mentioned them offhand maybe once, but definitely not in principles. He's never talked about this wealthy family, the Lives, who really took him in as a surrogate son. And what I found so interesting was it was a huge part of his life and how he was able to go from being, you know, the son of a jazz musician to this world-famous multi-billionaire. But he leaves that out of his story. Because mm -hmm. I, and I, I can't answer for him why, but I can say that with the Lives in the story, you realize that it's not all smarts. It's also connections. That he also sort of wheedled his way into this into this family by the way not illegally either he was quite he was no. quite charming what i love about this is after i started asking people about this family and this whole background about ray magically it showed up on his wikipedia page i didn't put mm. it there but all of a sudden i was like okay this is going to be out there and we'll you know i'll let him answer uh whether he had someone update that yeah, I mean, to me, it's sort of like it's I, I'm not sure that there's an obvious reason to hide this story either. It's sort of a great story that he's a young guy from a, you know, kind of middle working class background who's a golf caddy who manages to. Right. You'll notice in a whole lot of rags to riches stories that uh, the ultimate way that people move from rags to riches is to marry money or to be semi adopted by some rich family. You know, through because actually my takeaway was that he was very well read and he was mm -hmm. able to have the kind of conversations that maybe these people didn't expect of a golf caddy. And they saw something in him. And, you know, he attended every Thanksgiving dinner and things like that. Like, you know, there's that that says something about him. It doesn't it doesn't actually say anything negative. Like there's not much to hide, I would think, with a story like that for, for most people. For, for most people, right. But not, not for Ray and not for a lot of successful business titans now. Now, Ray also has almost never talked about how his wife is a Vanderbilt Whitney. Um, you know, she's part of this colossal famous uh, legacy with, with an amazing amount of wealth. What Ray and what, you know, Elon Musk likes to talk about this, a lot of other people, they, they love to tell the rags to riches story about how they pulled themselves up through their smarts. And I, I want to be clear, though I believe that Ray has caused a lot of pain, and I do believe that the principles are nothing like what he said, I don't believe he's a dumb man. I don't believe that he didn't put in the work. It, he, that, but I do believe that there there is a more complicated, more human story that for some reason he honestly has not been interested in telling. <laughs> People like a lot of Ray they like to portray themselves as you know, the hero who saves the day. All right, back to critique of the 48 laws of power. Like the new trend that uh, in our in our latest books, uh, yeah. where they just explain how to do the scam that they're doing yeah. to you right now. Fancy titles for simple things. Right. The use of numbers. It's like he's doing ten thousand hours. He's doing victimology. He's do he's doing our show. I do feel like <laughs> reading him and Tim Ferriss has made me realize that a lot of these guys are in fact doing this hyper consciously, mm. and I think that they don't 
perceive it like that entirely. Yeah, I yeah. think that when he's giving this advice, he's like, yeah, here's cool tips on building a cult-like yeah. following. He doesn't really realize that what he's doing is confessing. I also want to talk about the way that this book is specifically pitched to men. Uh-huh. I did some interesting reading on sort of like the self-help marketplace and how most self-help advice for women is about interpersonal relationships and a lot of it is about like health and wellness type stuff, whereas self-help advice to men is almost exclusively along these lines. It's like how to amass power or how to make money, basically. It's like they're both kind of doing the thing of like, here's how to attain status in the society that we have, but men and women are judged differently on what status is. Uh So there's a super fascinating law in this book that is law 33, discover each man's thumbscrew. The basic idea is that you should always be looking around yourself at like the weaknesses people have. Like what are their deepest desires? What are their impulses they can't control? Okay. So they have little titles. He says, find the helpless child. Most weaknesses begin in childhood before the self builds up compensatory defenses. Perhaps the child was pampered or indulged in a particular area, or perhaps a certain emotional need went unfulfilled. As he or she grows older, the indulgence or the deficiency may be buried but never disappears. He then says, fill the void. The two main emotional voids to fill are insecurity and unhappiness. The insecure are suckers for any kind of social validation. As for the chronically unhappy, look for the roots of their unhappiness. So like Jeff, the you know head of sales in the Northeast, returns home for Thanksgiving, but there I am, having coffee with his mother, asking about his childhood. <laughs> What were his weaknesses as a child? There is a point in like all of these books where like I start to become sad. And I think this was the point (laughs) for me because a lot of what he's describing are like the skills of friendship. Yeah. Right. You ask somebody about their childhood, you know, what challenges they face throughout their life. What are the relationships that are important to them? What are their impulses and their habits? Like what are the things that make them laugh and make them sad? Like, you know, which kinds of desires do they struggle to control? Mm -hmm. I, I keep thinking of like how straight men like need advice like this really bad of just like, the importance of intimate relationships, right? And a lot of it is this kind of stuff. Ask people about their values. Spend time with people. Right. And he's giving you all these skills, but he's giving them to you in this like sociopathic fucking way of you should like form like a a little file folder on everybody. Learn about your friend's childhood so that you can leverage it against him. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Just like be interested in people. The, 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 one of the only other like laws in this book that is like actually useful is like number law five, I think is like your reputation matters. Guard it with your life. And it's like the easiest way to have a good reputation is just to be like nice to people and work hard. Yeah, what does that even what does that even mean? Like sue people who say mean shit. The uh, the anecdote that he uses there is about how P.T. Barnum like destroyed somebody else's reputation because <laughs> he didn't have one. Right. If you the easiest way to have a good reputation is to take other people into consideration, right? If you don't take your boss into consideration, you're not gonna have a job for long. If you don't take your spouse into consideration, you're not gonna have a spouse for long. You don't take your community or your your friends into consideration. You're not going to have them for long either. So he's like, if if you don't have a good reputation, like destroy somebody else's because they'll have to defend themselves so vociferously that people will be like, why is he defending himself so much? This book is so sociopathic. <laughs> it feels that like I don't think it could turn anyone into a sociopath so much as only a sociopath could benefit from it, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And those people aren't reading it anyway. So it's this weird, like it, it exists in this weird like nether place. Those are the CEOs that like were upset that he's a Democrat. <laughs> I feel like you can tell that I've been reading this book by how I've manipulated you into saying exactly what I need you to to transition <laughs> into my next Okay, and these guys on If Books Could Kill, they also did the four-hour like going to Costa Rica week. and getting like a cheaper hotel room or something? Because it sounds like he's explicitly saying that's not what he's saying. He is explicitly saying that that's not what he's saying, but it is what he's saying. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm not talking about going to a cheaper country. 
But if you go to a cheaper country, it's cheaper. <laughs> I, I feel like we're also adding to our sort of like glossary of things that show up in all these airport books. And I feel like one of them is dressing up something totally unexotic as like forbidden wisdom. Like the idea that you can go to like Thailand or India and like live at a much higher standard of living than you can in the United States. It's like really basic and banal to point out. I, yeah, I got sort of intrigued here because I was like, oh, is he going to? Like, is, is there going to be some kind of cool trick here? <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, there won't be. So don't get excited. A lot of the opening sections of the book are just him sort of setting the table, providing guidelines and themes that he hits throughout. Many of them are sensible and inoffensive. Like a big one is to stop using the excuse of the timing isn't right okay. to put off big moves in your life from mm -hmm. like business decisions to vacations because he says the timing never feels right and you'll never make the big moves if you think that way. That actually sounds like reasonable advice to me, honestly. Totally. Do, do stuff. He yeah. also says that people tend to want to increase their income when they think about becoming more successful, but it's just as valuable or can be just as valuable to just reduce the number of hours you work. Okay. There is some weirder stuff. Um, he says ask for forgiveness, not permission, which is of course like a common saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but in this case, he's talking about like making large life decisions without telling your boss or life partner. Oh, wait, like he explicitly says this? <laughs> uh, quote, people, whether parents, partners, or bosses, deny things on an emotional basis that they can learn to accept after the fact. Oh, <laughs> so we're at another major theme of all these airport books, toxic masculinity. That's right. <laughs> Don't tell her what you're thinking and doing. So one of the big underlying ideas behind the book is that people are scared of change and will choose unhappiness over uncertainty. That's actually kind of wise. Yeah, uh, no, I, I agree. And um, it's, you know, sort of, it's on theme with the, you know, the timing is never right idea. Yeah. But it's also, you know, this is where you start to realize that he's about to give you a lot of advice that is very... Okay. Great, great critique from If Books Could Kill on the 4-Hour work week. Let's uh, talk about the anatomy of a grifter. Let's talk about Jackson Hinkle. All right, this is Pekka tweeting. All right. Talk about Jackson Hinkle, how he's using social media to make money and become a popular, yet highly controversial figure online. All right, he's lost his uh, YouTube channel. He was banned from TikTok. Started focusing heavily on Twitter. His account is the fastest growing account on the platform. Five minutes don't pass without him advertising his three US dollar premium subscription with no notable benefits to subscribers. There are two important characteristics that most good grifters possess. One, they disregard the truth. Two, they're completely cynical in their worldview and they basically have no moral compass. In short, they go anywhere the money is. Jackson Hinkle usually goes on the offensive when his income is at jeopardy. After Elon Musk said that community noted posts will get demonetized, immediately claimed that a Zionist have hijacked these notes and mobilized people to rate any notes on his posts as unhelpful. So Hinkle is good with social media and community building, knows how people lure it into BS, and he uses his large Discord server to mobilize people to attack or ratio any post that criticizes Jackson Hinkle or his grift. His account on X has become massive. He has 2 million followers, over 7,000 subscribers. So he's making twenty dollars to $30,000 a month on X. 1.5 million of his followers started following it just in the last 30 days after he switched his pro-Kremlin narrative to a pro-Hamas one. Russia shows the cynical approaches of switching narratives overnight as long as it benefits his wallet. Hinkle wasn't always like this. 2019, when he was running for the San Clemente City Council, he ran on the LGBTQ platform, rainbow flags and all. He was also a big Bernie bro. Supported Bernie Sanders' left-wing politics. His ex-girlfriend, Sarah Brady, 
considered him a democratic socialist at the time. So after she broke up with him, something changed. Jackson became an Andrew Tate-type macho misogynist, condemning OnlyFans girls while at the same time trying to get them to date him. And he started going against the work culture, associated himself with Jordan Peterson, a pro-Kremlin psychologist who would later strongly support Netanyahu's efforts against Hamas. Hinkle's social media growth is by no means organic. He gained hundreds of thousands of followers in just a few days during his recent trip to Moscow. Another surge came right after Hamas's terror attack on 7th of October 2023. Supporting Hamas is yet another opportunist scheme to make more money. Below you can see a video from a year ago where Hinkle praises Israeli PM Benjamin Netanyahu for his great collaboration with the likes of Putin and Xi. Then just a week ago, he shared an AI-generated image of bloody BB calling for the prosecution of him for war crimes. He's called one of Putin's closest allies, Bashar al-Assad, a hero. But in reality, al-Assad, like most other Arab leaders, doesn't care about the Palestinians. He sieged and bombed the Palestinian refugee outpost Yamuk, located in Damascus back in 2013. It's led to significant deterioration in conditions for the Palestinians inside the camp. Whether Hinkle is a Russian operative or not is irrelevant. Seems to be the kind of person who will say or do anything to earn money and get attention. Recently challenged Ben Shapiro to a debate. Post-truth society allows people like Donald Trump, Jackson Hinkle, to survive, as there are no consequences to lying and no benefits to telling the truth. These people will keep on grifting and making money through their lies. So also mentions Ian Miles Chong here. Here is Hinkle's tweet of the infamous neo-Nazi slogan, 14 words, often used with acts of white supremacist terrorism. phrase probably has no meaning to Hinkle. He presumably posted it to cause controversy and drive engagement. We must secure the existence of our people and a future for white children. Jackson Hinkle, September 20, 2022. All right, Steve Saylor's out with a new column, Shifting Support. This past month has led to agonizing reappraisals among some mainstream Jewish American liberals over the traditional Jewish American shibboleth that diversity must be good for the Jews. So shibboleth is something that's widely believed by a group that is false. It's a custom, a principle, or a belief distinguishing a particular group of people, especially a long-standing one regarded as outmoded or no longer important. Not surprisingly to anybody who's been paying cold-blooded attention to the past half century, the older, unfashionably homogeneous American population has turned out to be wildly positive toward the Jewish state in its moments of crisis, while the younger, diverse, upcoming generation finds itself roughly evenly split over whether the real bad guys are Hamas or Israel. In the wake of the October 7 atrocities, the Harvard Harris poll asked, in general, do you side more with Israel or Hamas? Among Americans aged 65 years or older, 95% sided with Israel, but 48% of the much less white 18 to 24-year-old cohort backed Hamas. Let me play a little bit more from If Books Could Kill on the 4-Hour Workweek while I catch my breath. Applicable to a 28-year-old with seven figures in the bank. Right, right. You know, (laughs) like when he is considering his big year-long sabbatical, He's weighing the downsides and he's like, look, even if everything goes wrong and my business collapses, 
what's my worst case scenario? Mm. And he's like, look, I have the experience and the resume to get a job and get back on my feet and it won't be great, but it'll be fine. Yeah. He's like, what's the worst that could happen? I'm already earning $70,000 a year in interest from my accounts that I have. <laughs> right, 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 like, right. Well, you, right. Yes. People that, that does in fact give you a lot more options. True. So yes, many people do choose unhappiness over instability. I agree with that, but that's because the risks of instability for many people are extremely high. Yeah. How many fake gurus are, are there out there advising people to like leave the rat race and pursue whatever makes you happy right move to costa rica and give surfing lessons right yeah now ferris is giving that same advice but without the trade-off where like you abandon your dream of material wealth right you can go teach people to surf in costa rica for a living but that requires some level of comfort with poverty right yeah and this book is fundamentally about not wanting to make that trade-off right because yeah the ordinary advice would be like yeah go bum around southeast asia for a while and like you're just gonna be broke and sleep in like youth hostels and stuff right which is great and like a super formative and awesome experience but also you're not gonna like earn money doing that like that's right. not a path to riches necessarily it's just like a nice thing to do when you're young right and so what we're getting what we're building towards is that he's going to show you how you can do all that while still being a little bit rich, right? Ooh. Well, being part of this new rich club. Yeah. The last part of the opening section is about the practice of dreamlining. <laughs> uh, this is where you create a clear outline of what your dream is. Okay. And he provides like worksheets and shit. Okay. Those worksheets have examples and I'm going to I'm going <laughs> to read off some of those examples to you. <laughs> he says, "Let's say in 6 months I want to have an Aston Martin, a personal assistant and be a best-selling author." Mm -hmm. And then he lays out the costs. For the Aston Martin, it's $2,000 a month. Okay. He prices the personal assistant at $400 based on 80 hours a month at $5 an hour. Wait. A rate that was below the federal minimum wage. Yeah. Uh, at every point after 1997. <laughs> he prices becoming a best-selling author at $0 uh, because the only costs are A, your time, which is free, and B, three unpaid interns to handle promoting uh, the book. Okay. This is a turning point in the book. Because it's the first peek at the actual secret behind the four-hour work week. Child slaves. <laughs> We're back to child slaves. Well, we are. <laughs> this is the first time he touches on a significant, maybe the most significant material component of the strategy, which is identifying sources of cheap labor to do the work for you. Hell yeah. Again, not exotic advice. This is no. this is pretty standard advice of like, if you want to be rich, like find people willing to work for you for like almost nothing. Yeah. And it, it's interesting because it's like, okay, yeah. Four-hour work week for you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Full-time job for your slave wage team, right? right. <laughs> uh, all right. E, elimination. Uh, he says to forget about time management. He thinks that people focus on busying themselves too much without thinking about being effective with their time. Okay. He talks about identifying and eliminating time-wasting or time. All right, back to Steve Saylor's new column at uh, Tacky Mag. So other polls have found the same sort of generation gap in the NPR survey. 83% of baby boomers say the U.S. should support Israel. 48% of those born from 1981 to 2005. An October 17 generation lab poll of 978 college students found that 48% of them do not blame the October 7 attacks on Hamas. So the obvious reason for declining support for Israel among American voters is because the U.S. isn't as white and as Christian as it used to be. For white Americans, the common age in the United States is 58. And it's white Christians who tend to love the Jews and Israel. By contrast, the most common age in America for Hispanics is 11. It is 27 for blacks and 29 for Asians. So the more diverse America gets, the less enthusiastic American voters are towards Israel and their Jewish friends.
Right, the anti-Israel boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement has made its greatest progress in the most demographically futuristic institutions, such as the University of California campuses, where whites have long been reduced to a minority. In California, the state with the largest number and greatest diversity of newcomers, immigration is destabilizing the American order in which Jews have thrived. The irony is that Jewish organizations have long tended to heavily promote the diversification of the American population, the precise policy that now threatens American support for Israel in the long run. So the Anti-Defamation League published a pamphlet in 1964 collecting the late President Kennedy's articles backing higher immigration that introduced the title phrase, A Nation of Immigrants into the National Discourse. Jewish leaders tend to have multiple motivations for promoting diversity, one, let in more Jewish immigrants. Two, nostalgic ancestor worship of their own immigrant forefathers. Three, a belief that their Jewish forebears were the best immigrants ever. And they don't want to be rude as to admit publicly is unlikely that most of the newer groups can live up to the high standards set by old Jews. Four, an urge to make Jewish role in American history seem more important by elevating Emma Lazarus' 1883 Huddled Masses poem to the second most important founding document behind only the Declaration of Independence outranking such once important statements as the preamble to the U.S. Constitution, which states that uh, we're doing all this for ourselves and for our posterity, in George Washington's farewell address. Five, a desire for logical consistency over the centuries for 21st century descendants of 19th century immigrants to say that times have changed. Now enough is enough with immigration. That would be like an Italian, something an Italian might say, but Jews hold themselves to higher ethical standards. Six, an impressive ethnic self-confidence that while sure Scots-Irish can't be expected to compete against the whole world and succeed, Jews can and will. Seven, to make Jews seem less diverse by bringing in more exotics such as women in chadors. Eight, make it harder for a majority to unite against Jews. Nine, to rig future elections in favor of the Democrats by bringing in Democratic-leaning future voters. Ten, to boost the Democrats' grand strategy of a coalition of the fringes. Eleven, to irritate old Americans into opposing immigration thus providing the ADL with bad guys to fundraise against. We have an assumption that even as immigration tips the voting scales by importing anti-Zionists, the massiveness of the Jewish advantage in political fundraising, so two-thirds of the dollars donated by the top 50 donors in 2018 were from Jews. So all will be well. And 13, a general, general Alfred E. Newman, what me worry attitude towards skepticism about immigration. After all, we were immigrants, so what's the worst that could happen? So it's unlikely that the events of October 2023 will lead American Jews to rapidly convert to immigration restrictionism. Nevertheless, there is a possibility that the aftermath of October 7 will finally help break up the intellectual stasis that has hamstrung Jewish-American thought in the 21st century. It's possible that October 7 will lead to Jews doubling down on wokeness as long as Jews get to be at the top of the totem pole of sacred classes. It's also possible that more Jews will recognize that they will never be conceded the top spot, and that the other contenders for most sacred minority are not their friends. Instead, what's actually good for the Jews is America's pre-woke culture of free speech and open debate. We shall see. Consuming habits. <clears throat> he suggests limiting your email use so that you have a dedicated email answering hour every day, thus avoiding constant email interruptions. That honestly seems like very good advice. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, he says, have a second phone number so that you can have one dedicated to urgent matters. That's what Hillary Clinton did, and the country never forgave her. <laughs> Interesting. Interesting he goes there. He also gives advice for being 
effective on phone calls, and I'm going to send you some templates. Ooh. Read the read the intro, and I'll be John, and you okay. be Jane. If someone does call your cell phone, it's presumably urgent and should be treated as such. Do not allow them to consume time otherwise. It's all in the greeting. Compare the following. Mm-hmm. And then I'm Jane, receiving a call. Hello? Hi, is this Jane? This is Jane. Hi, Jane. It's John. Oh, hi, John. How are you? John will now digress and lead you into a conversation about nothing from which you will have to recover and then fish out the ultimate purpose of the call. There's a better approach. This is Jane speaking. Hi, it's John. Hi, John. I'm right in the middle of something. How can I help you out? Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's not in the screen drive you said. That's you. We're now in full improv. That's like me, it. John, panicking. <laughs> Jane's got me in the spotlight. I better act fast. This seems like reasonable advice. Get to the point of phone calls, I guess. This is one of my favorite parts of the book because... He's basically advising you on how to save four seconds off of every phone call. Yeah, 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 and yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. okay, I guess that's part of the 36 hours that I will gain every week during this. But <laughs> it seems like we're going to need to do a lot more work. It's funny to me that usually we try to be meticulously fair to these books. And like we, we dove right in on like roasting this fucking guy. <laughs> <We didn't. laughs> it's very hard not to. You know, the one thing I will say in defense of this book is he gives the full scheme. Like he lays yeah. out. The full vision. So we'll give him credit for being kind of upfront about this deranged plan, but the plan is still deranged. Next section is A, automation. And the first chapter of it is called Outsourcing Life. Okay. It begins with an account that's not written by Ferris. It's written by A.J. Jacobs at the time, an editor at Esquire. Okay. Give me one second. I'll send it to you. Oh, my fucking God. He says, it began a month ago. I was midway through The World is Flat, the bestseller by Tom Friedman. I like Friedman, despite his puzzling decision to wear a mustache. Ooh, ooh, got him. Burned. His book is all about how outsourcing to India and China is not just for tech support and car makers, but is poised to transform every industry in America, from law to banking to accounting. I don't have a corporation. I don't even have an up-to-date business card. I'm a writer and editor working from home. Then again, I think, why should Fortune 500 firms have all the fun? Why can't I join in on the biggest business trend of the new century? Why can't I outsource my low-end tasks? God, I actually remember this, Peter. There was, like, a brief period of hype around, like, ordinary people outsourcing yeah. aspects of their lives to, like, personal assistance. Because whenever whenever something is, like, great for giant corporations, there's always a giant PR push to be like, this will be good for you, too. Yeah, this is going to change life for everyone. But then yeah. my understanding is that it completely fizzled out because once you actually get down to it, there's not that many tasks in your life that you can outsource like it would be kind of nice Mm. to be like hey can you call a restaurant and like make a reservation for seven for me and my friends great but then by the time you tell someone in india to do that and then you probably have to clarify with them like wait which restaurant oh yeah oh here's the number it's not saving you that much time and then how many tasks can you really outsource to someone who like doesn't know your life Mm -hmm. very well Mm -hmm. You know, like, oh, respond to my Tinder messages for me. Right, right. And then a lot of tasks are also in person. A lot of the things that take up people's time are stuff like, you know, getting your kids ready for school or whatever. I, I do want to say that this builds toward my theory that there will eventually only be one book, right? <laughs> yeah, that yeah. we are working toward the single book. <laughs> so the basic principle is that you use assistance to free up your time to do work, mm-hmm. which gives you more money for assistance, which mm-hmm. gives you more time. Uh, you know, it's a, the cycle of glory. Mm-hmm. This is when the vision of the book sort of came fully into focus for me because it starts off with this very relatable disillusionment with the workplace grind and yeah. like a desire to escape it and focus on the more important things in life. But then you get to the core of the book and you realize it's not really about escaping the grind per se. It's about 
offloading the grind onto someone poorer than you. Right. It's basically, I want to escape the rat race by no longer being a rat, but becoming like the rat master. Like I'm the one <laughs> building the maze. <laughs> Transition from exploited to exploiter. <laughs> so Ferris gives a bunch of tips about managing your assistants. Like he says to be specific when you're delegating. Otherwise you lose time later trying to clarify. Ugh, don't you hate that? He also talks about like the limits of delegation. And I'm going to send you a bit. First... I try to delegate my therapy. My plan is to give Asha a list of my neuroses and a childhood anecdote or two, have her talk to my shrink for 50 minutes, then relay the advice. Smart, right? My shrink refused. Ethics or something. Fine. Instead, I have Asha send me a meticulously researched memo on stress relief. It had a nice Indian flavor to it with a couple of yogic postures and some visualization. <laughs> oh my god. Bro. <laughs> he tries to outsource his, his therapy. Wow. All right. Uh, on, on Twitter... Israeli police have released testimony from a girl who survived the October 7 massacre. Quote, I saw the Palestinians bending her down, raping her, and simply passing her on to the next. She was alive when they raped her. She was on her feet and bleeding from her back. He pulled her hair. He shot her in the head while raping her. Didn't even lift his pants. They cut her breast and played with it. They just carried it around like someone's head as if showing strength. They walked with it like a bag. This honestly reads like satire. Like it read this reads like yeah. an argument against being able to outsource this stuff. Like this seems like a description of like why this would never fucking work. I mean, look, there might not be a better summation of this book than Tim identifying therapy as the least important use of his yeah. time <laughs> and then trying to offload it onto an outsourced wage slave personal assistant. Who, who's Indian. So, of course, the recommendation is yoga. Obviously. <laughs> right, that's, right. that's what they do there. Uh. But then, yeah, this is this weird, like capitalistic understanding of like your own personality and relationships because at this point you're like oh i'm gonna catch up with a high school friend of mine well why don't i outsource that and like asha can go and she can give me like points so like what's greg up to these days yeah right right, but, like, right. That's, th this is the point of life <laughs> it, it's as if the dream is just being plugged into the matrix and you're just like a twitching little corpse yeah, while yeah. while your personal assistants handle everything for you it's it's bizarre he also goes through the concerns that you might have about this sort of arrangement, not the moral concerns. He says that the number one fear is that someone within your army of personal assistants might decide that it would be more profitable to just steal from you. But does he talk about how hard it is to find people now that quiet quitting is such a big problem in our society? Okay, looking at uh, Elbridge Colby, a foreign policy analyst, and uh, he is responding to this tweet that uh, Taiwan successfully repelling a People's Republic of China invasion would make me happy. I strongly support efforts to do this. But from Taiwan's perspective, they will essentially lose either way, whether they repel the invasion or not. Right? The island will be turned into rubble and it will be a humanitarian disaster. So they have a strong incentive to avoid any conflict. So Taiwan's kind of mystifying that they put so little effort into defending themselves. They only spend 1% of their GNP on defense. Elbridge Colby comments, the best way for Taiwan to avoid an invasion is to arm up like Israel so that Beijing knows that an invasion would fail. Ferris gives some tips for suppressing these wage slave rebellions. Uh, he talks about like background checks and NDAs and like encryption and VPN. Oh my God. And he's like, I only provide sensitive information to my most trusted assistants. I don't know, man. When I, when I worked in human rights at one point, I had a team of like five people that I was managing mm -hmm. and it was so much fucking work to manage people. I mean, all you're doing is you're basically turning yourself into like a middle manager right. of your own life. I mean, look, by the time you're getting someone to sign an NDA for yeah, $4 yeah, yeah, yeah. an hour, yeah. like, what are you fucking doing here? You know? <laughs> all right. The, the next few chapters we, we move away from the indentured servitude okay. and toward income autopilot, uh, which 
is about creating streams of passive income by starting a business. Ooh, another theme for the show. This is all these books promise passive income. Now he said, yes. And what's the way to start a passive income stream? All right. Sell, sell products online, right? Downloadable products. So courses, this is hilarious. I love this. The ultimate goal is to have a business where you can remove yourself from the org chart and put yourself in a position where you're essentially in an oversight role. He does this primarily by relying on trusted contractors and giving them leeway to make. Come on, guys. So your information products. So the lessons of the Holocaust. So your program on how to you know pick up girls at a bar. Make decisions as they deem fit. Oh, I'm going to send you a little bit. <laughs> he says, I'm more like a police officer on the side of the road who can step in if need be. I check reports from fulfillment each Monday and monthly reports from the same the first of each month. The latter reports include orders received from the call center, which I can compare to the call center bills to gauge profit. Otherwise, I just check bank accounts online on the 1st and 15th of each month to look for odd deductions. If I find something, one email will fix it. And if not, it's back to kendo, painting, hiking, or whatever I happen to be doing at the time. Okay, so he's working. This is like just being a boss. Just being a boss. Yeah. Although I, this is another one of those things where I, um, I, this is the second time I've said this on this podcast, but this is another place where I would pay a million dollars to watch Karl Marx read this. <laughs> just like, how do I maximize my rent seeking? Like, how yeah, can yeah, I yeah. maximize my lecherousness vis-a-vis -vis labor? Right, right. There's something deeply disturbing about being like, I still get the money, but I try to do as little as possible. <laughs> I like, I, I don't know. I hear that. I read this and I hear the international. I also feel like, look, man, if these books are going to recycle their little lessons, we're going to recycle jokes. <laughs> we're just going to keep doing it. Every episode, we're going to make the same Marx joke. It's if fine. they're building towards one book, we're building towards one episode. <laughs> Also, the, uh, the rich dad, poor dad guy also said this of like, be the head of a company and like just receive passive income. But like, that's hard. It's, <laughs> it's it hard. It's easy to start your own successful company that you can then completely bow out of. More people would fucking do it. Like the whole point is that it's not easy to do this and often requires massive startup capital and like some sort of specialization and all kinds of luck and shit. Well, Mike, not to cut you off. But Tim Ferriss has a plan for you. Oh. There are steps towards starting a functional business that provides you passive income in this book. He got a little ahead of himself talking about the org chart. But he's okay. like, all right, so what's the real question, right? You want to know how to create a product yeah. that you can sell passively without handling much of the day-to-day. -day. It's 2007, so is it just bubble tea? It's going to be bubble tea. <laughs> no. He says you don't want to provide a service because that means you get paid by the hour. Yeah. Right? You want to provide a downloadable or shippable product. Okay. So he says think about markets that you know, uh, industry groups that you associate with, for example, social groups you associate with. Figure out which of those groups have magazines with large circulations that you can advertise in. This, again, okay. this is like almost 20 years ago, right? Yeah, fair enough. He says, one, pick an affordably reachable niche market. Two, brainstorm a product to sell to that market. Step one, come up with a great business idea. <laughs> Step one. Step two, sell. <laughs> he says, look, you can try to sell a physical product, but the simpler route is to sell an informational product like an instructional DVD course. Oh, no. Oh, so he's turning you into a fucking self-help guru like all these guys do eventually. That's right. Uh, he's saying, look, these are harder for competitors to replicate. Oh, my God. They have lower upfront costs, higher margins, all, all the good stuff that you want in a business, right? And then he's like, uh, eventually write a book giving some fake plan and sell it to a bunch of fucking suckers. You know, I, I was about to say this. This is not the first time that we've seen one of our authors advise readers to do scams. But this is, I think, the first time we've had one explain the scam that he's running on you right now. Yeah, you are now the product being sold. Like, you are the sucker. <laughs> right. It is so fascinating to me how many of these guys 
are basically just like training you how to become a guru because they're like, well, I can make up all this shit. <laughs> Why don't you start making up a bunch of shit and then sell it to other people? Our, our listener at home is like, but Peter, how can I sell an informational DVD yeah. when I am not an expert in anything at all? And Tim's got you covered. Ooh. So I'm going to send you something. He says, if you aren't an expert, don't sweat it. Expert in the context of selling a product means that you know more about the topic than the purchaser. It is not necessary to be the best, just better than a small target number of your prospective customers. Let's suppose that your current dream line to compete in the 1,150-mile Iditarod dog sledding race in Alaska requires $5,000 to realize. If there are 15,000 readers and even 50 or 0.33% can be convinced of your superior expertise in skill X and spend $100 for a program that teaches it, that's $5,000. <laughs> Bring on the Huskies. Oh, so is this just like bullshit? Your way. That is absolutely the. Pl I mean, first of all, he says, "Look, expert doesn't mean that you are an expert. It means that you know more about the topic than the other guy." And it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> does it? This is also the career of numerous national political pundits. <laughs> they don't have any actual expertise, but you know what? Just talk like you do. It's fine. He also suggests just like finding several books on a topic and then paraphrasing them, <laughs> or using content from the public domain. That's what Rich Dad Poor Dad does too. He's just like, yeah, just repackage stuff that other gurus are saying. This right. is the great like giant national game of telephone that happens with these mm -hmm. fucking self-help books is they're all just repackaging shit from other self-help books there's an incredible insert in this book titled how to become an expert in four weeks fuck yes he says quote there is a difference between being perceived as an expert and being one and that all that matters in this context is being perceived as one he outlines some steps he says one join a few trade organizations in the field two Read the three top-selling books on the topic. Okay. Three, give one free seminar at the closest well-known university using posters to advertise, then leverage that to give some seminars for large corporations with campuses nearby if you can. Four, optional. Write an article for a trade magazine, and if they decline, offer to interview someone more established in the field. Five, and this one's slightly outdated, but join ProfNet, which is a service that connects journalists and experts for articles. My immediate gut reaction to this was this would work this, yeah, oh, yeah, this would work yes it's 100 yeah it felt a little bit like looking into the abyss reading this section it's really wild how he's just saying it right this is the most openly i've ever seen someone like this talk about this sort of thing. okay let's get a little uh boost here from libs of uh tiktok i'm really sick of like all of these posts of non-jews supporting israel and saying shit like check on your jewish friends see if they're okay your jewish friends must be having a really hard time right now we have to stand with israel because jews <laughs> i haven't actually made any video or really talked about the occupation and the genocide happening right now because i don't really have the words to explain I don't want to say anything that's not well thought out, so I just haven't said anything. But I've been, like, sharing and spreading the word and all of that. And I stand with Palestinians no matter what. It just makes me so sick and annoyed to see how many non-Jewish people are pretending like they're allies of Jewish people just because they stand with Israel. Y'all are a bunch of anti-Semites. Really sick of, like... Okay, that will do it for today. Take care. Bye-bye.